Ben McCann. Greetings, and welcome to Wake the Dead. Today, we are very happy to have a returning guest and a new guest. Our returning guest is, everyone should remember, Mr. Brett Carollo, who is one half of PSYOP Cinema, very good friends of the show. And we have a new guest, Mr. Stephen DeLay, who has been on with PSYOP Cinema, Brett and Thomas, and he's also been on with my friend William Ramsey. And uh, you just released a, a you edited a book about Terrence Malick films, and uh, you do a lot of good work, and uh, we're excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. Wonderful. Hi there, Brett. Say hello to <laughs> Hey, Sean. Great to be on again. Okay, great. Very good. So today, uh, we have kind of an interesting topic. This is something that came way out of left field. I never really heard about this, but... Um, Speaking of Hollywood and what the debauchery that goes on, uh, we like Brett and I were talking, and um, Stephen sent Brett a recording from this guy named uh, Richard Albertini, who is a who grew up in Hollywood in the eighties. And he was friends with the Arquettes and he was, he went to the Odyssey and he was part of that crew. And he grew up to be uh, a gangster, I guess. Um, and he lived a, uh, definitely a different life than the rest of us. Well, he and, was, he says his, so he says he was born into the Gambino crime family um, in, in this recording and this, you know, and we'll play part of it, but there are other um, videos or words. I mean, he's, he's said these things to many kind of uh, whatever you want to call them, sort of independent fringe investigators. Um, but his, the reason we're talking about him, Mimi, because his, his cred is, is real. Like, I mean, um, this guy seems to be exactly what he says he is. He has a lot of information. He names a lot of names. I mean, he claims he was working with Mossad. So yeah, it says he was born into the Gambino crime family, but was also grew up in, in you're right in the Hollywood scene, um, you know, that you mentioned and around the Odyssey. And then he, then the other big connection is the Viper room. So right. he has, and, and he has some role. Uh, I don't know if he's like a he bouncer a or he was a bar back stocking the bar. Okay. So he, yeah. And so he apparently was, Friends with Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard people, and I, I haven't followed this closely, but I gather that they went to him, and he says in, in this one that they came to him and they wanted to, yeah, kind of drum up a story against against Johnny Depp. Now, Albertini says in this in, in this recording, he's like, yeah, Johnny Depp didn't do anything to Amber Heard. I mean, we don't know he, if he knows that, but he doesn't believe, he had no reason to believe that Johnny Depp did anything, but he says that I guess he cooperated with him because he's on another video that the herd people put out or uh, promoted talking about how, you know, he saw debt being violent toward women, men himself at the Viper room. In other words, at the, at the Viper room. But he also says in this video that there's a lot of bad stuff. He's going to talk about Depp isn't really involved in any of it. He emphasizes that neither is Charlie Sheen, but he names a lot of other names of, of people that, that, <laughs> that were, 
And I mean, man, yeah, we're, we're like going into the vortex of like organized crime, Hollywood, satanic ritual murders as initiations into Hollywood. Yes, this is for real. So that's why we're, we're covering that. So sorry, I just wanted to since great. I, I had since, yeah, Stephen had sent it to me. And uh, yeah, maybe I don't even remember how Stephen, you started to explain to me at one point how you came across this. I don't remember, but this is a really um, this is a really amazing recording that I don't think too many people know about. So the shame of it is that I can't remember how I came across it. Of course, I know where I did because it's still there. Uh, it was posted, I think, originally in November of 2021 on Rumble. I don't typically use Rumble. Uh, I, I, I'm just, you know, YouTube and then like I'll find things on Twitter. So if I had to guess, I think I may have come across the Rumble link somewhere in a comment section and some thread on, in, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I was immediately struck when I li started listening to it because the thing that uh, just so your listeners are clear about the context of this this conversation that we're that we're mentioning here, uh, Albertini makes a phone call that he's recording. He's recording himself, and he's phoning uh, CPS, Child Protective Services, in California, and he ends up speaking to somebody there who's uh, I guess his name is Ron Schindel, who works for the governor in the CPS program. And uh, Albertini, to me, sounded immediately credible. I have questions about certain things that he says in other in other interviews. Not everything checks out, and like we can get you know into the granular detail of some of these claims and potential inconsistencies and theories about what his motivations may be for why he's disclosing the information he is and where. But just listening to it, my initial reaction to to that CPS recording is that this is a guy who is privy to a lot of inside information that most people don't have. He's tapped into this criminal underworld. He's been there for a very long time. He knows a number of very powerful people, and he has a lot of information that he wanted to offload into the system with the authorities, even if he knew that due to the kind of systematic corruption that he's describing, it wasn't really going to do anything. I think that for whatever reason, he decided that it was time to come forward with some of it. And so to me, he sounded like somebody who understood that most likely disclosing the information he had regarding the Viper Room and uh, the death of River Phoenix and uh, different things that were going on with you know, people like uh, Gavin Newsom and Eric Garcetti and Dan Pelosi, this information is not going to go anywhere, but uh, he he was prepared to to disclose it anyway, maybe to protect himself or other people um, that that know about this information as well. And it seems like he was just uh, ready to get frustrated with dealing with CPS, who he knew probably wasn't going to take seriously what it is he had to say, but he uh, put the information out there anyway. So. I think he's generally credible, although um, I do have questions about uh, the way he frames certain uh, uh, aspects of his story. We can get into this, but specifically with the way that he presents Mossad's involvement in some of the uh, the business enterprises that he was engaged in with a guy named uh, uh, Ami Shafir. Uh, but but yeah, just that my initial sort of set of comments here is that the the CPS recording is fascinating. I think most of what he says to me sounds true. I don't really see any reason to discount it, although I do know, Sean, you had said that uh, for the Peter Green incident, which we can delve into, you look for the police report, which should be yeah. uh, on file because it took place, I think, according to him in 92. I don't know whether you actually found any record of that incident. but I did not. I tried. I went looking. Um, I, like, I went to the L.A. 
county records you know on you know the, the online sources the best that i could maybe i'm not digging in the right place but i was not able to find it i tried and he says in the recording that that is that that um statement that uh the peter green incident that statement he said it's there it is on file but i mean 92 is before computers maybe it's in a file box somewhere you know in a basement like i don't know my, if they ever put it on the computer yeah my thinking is maybe it hasn't been digitized so it is just a hard copy or uh the other way to look at it is that assuming that albertini is telling the truth given the nature of the incident in question the people who are involved it could have very easily been destroyed right uh, i know that he said he thinks it's there but my impression was that he was assuming that it should be there Right. I don't know if he said he'd ever checked to see for himself whether it was. He's um, just one man. I mean, he's not in control. Once he gives it to the cops, like, the, basically the cult owns the cops. So, like, there's really no hope with that, you know. Um, well, I don't know how you want to work through all the Albertini material. I want to talk about the Peter Green incident because that was the thing in, in, the, in this particular recording that motivated me to send it to Brett because that's the material that I thought Brett would find most interesting because it's right up Psyop Cinema out the alleyway. But I mean, there's all this other, all this other information about trafficking and the Odyssey, and so I don't know if maybe maybe Brett wants to say something about the whole Laurel Canyon scene, because the way it starts off, it's like very Dave McGowan esque, right? So anybody who's read Weird Scenes in the Canyon or has read Program to Kill knows about these Laurel Canyon figures like Eddie Nash and what was going on with the Manson family. But this is all right on Sunset Boulevard. It's all right right there in Hollywood. And uh, the the Odyssey was apparently even read, run by Eddie Nash. So, so Eddie Nash is the guy that did the murder with John Holmes, right? The Wonderland murders? Yes. He's the guy that – he was the guy that put the contract out for those killings. And then the story was that Holmes may have actually been one of the murderers. He was but there. Has, There's a palm print right above the bed. Yeah, so Holmes's explanation is that he was forced to witness the murders as a punishment for having crossed Nash, and so that basically this was a threat to Holmes, but he wasn't actually one of the murders, is the way the story goes, according right. to Holmes. That's, yeah. Of course, sure. <laughs> but yeah, the reason I mention this is just because like, when Albertine describes being a, a teenager growing up in Beverly Hills, growing up in Hollywood, partying with all these people, this is the club he's at. He's at the Eddie Nash-owned The Odyssey. Right. And so this gets into like all the sex trafficking, the modeling agencies, and there's uh, there's there's an overlap here with serial killers with one of the women that well, he mentions I, was murdered. Well, I was thinking so much. Go ahead. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. before the, yeah, before we go the uh, yeah the kind of Laurel Canyon and into trafficking angle. We might say that for once we've 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 played a bit of that Peter Green recording, but before that, I was thinking if there's one thing to talk about just to kind of establish Albertini's credibility. And I mean, you'll I mean he has he definitely like grew up in this milieu. There's mm -hmm. no question about a lot of the stuff he's claiming um, is, is true. But another thing, he claims that he was involved in the <clears throat> conviction of David Rademacher. Um, that's something that might be worth talking about. This is a guy who was according i mean he according to albertini he knew him through these phone sex lines that they were running in california albertini says his name was is on them in all the records as president and ceo of a number of them now that goes down the in another direction that goes down the mossad rabbit hole because right. mossad he claims was was involved in this because they were using this for blackmail operations but of anyway course. rademacher was also um you know 
pretending to be like a, a a fashion photographer and he was luring women and raping them and he killed this woman kimberly and, pandelios yeah he killed this woman and uh anyway uh, albertini says he was he testified i didn't check this out maybe some of y'all did he claimed that he testified in the case he knew Rademacher um through this and he and through Rademacher he knew this guy named Dominic Brasha whose name might be vaguely familiar to some people who were following the Corey Heim Corey Feldman saga of of, a, of some decade or so ago before Heim killed himself um and this is a, one of the few names that they they you know there there were these claims about the Heim the I'm sorry the Heims the the Corys especially Corey Heim being trafficked and being abused by major producers and people but they named this like nobody named Dominic Grasha uh, mm. um who was uh, a monster of a guy who said. yes well well Albertini says this is like Rademacher and brushes you look at these people you like they're just like <laughs> these monstrous horrible people like the pictures <laughs> don't do them justice I mean that's what Albertini mm. um says they're just really really gross uh gross sort of people but so yeah so this is the this is the this is the underworld of, right. of Hollywood that um well, it follows uh, it, it follows you know Hollywood like the moon, right? As to, <laughs> right. to, quote, to quote the to quote another fellow that we yeah that was a, you know? that was a quote from Paul Baresi, yeah. Who mm -hmm. uh, Paul Baresi was on Ed Opperman, the Opperman Report, and I listened to that. And Paul Baresi worked with he did pornography. He was a porn. Uh, actor, whatever he says, he's straight, but he did a bunch of gay porn and um, said that he, uh, um, John Travolta was his biggest fan and paid to have sex with him and like uh, really messed up story. Um, he said that Eddie Murphy liked trannies and picked up a Samoan tranny, and uh, all the trannies in hollywood know about eddie murphy they all banged eddie murphy and baresi was like hired to make them all shut up and one of those trannies ended up falling off the roof but paul baresi says he didn't do that oh she just tries to climb in her window because <clears throat> the door was locked and whoops you know so like he uh paul baresi is a strong man who works for the the mob basically to make people shut up and eddie murphy yeah, if i if i might just if i might just interject briefly here yeah. i mean so yeah to the point about paul baresi's my understanding is that uh albertini says that baresi is a private investigator among mm -hmm. other things in los angeles but that yes he's also a contract killer right and the other thing is uh brett you just mentioned Corey feldman so to kind of give listeners uh you know, understanding of the kind of milieu that Albertini is floating through here in the 80s and 90s with the, the Odyssey, but then also the Viper Room. Uh, it's Corey Feldman that uh, Albertini claims publicly accused him of murdering River Phoenix. Yeah. So I haven't gone back through the Twitter files to check whether or not Feldman actually made this accusation. But Corey Cor Feldman also claimed that Charlie Sheen raped Corey Haim. Which and this is this is, an is not true, whatever. according to Albertini. So this is actually one thing that's interesting about Albertini is he he defends people who you might expect him not to defend, given who Albertini himself claims to be and what his interests are. So he 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 claims that he's a Christian. He's been born again. And then he, right. he says that he's this sort of like right wing sort of patriot, 
almost like a sort of QAnon sort of person. Although he says he, he doesn't like he, QAnon. Yeah, although he, right. he yeah exactly he explicitly disavows Q, but he says well he's on this quest to expose public corruption. He's on this quest to expose human trafficking. But so then we need more same, of him. We need more people like that. So go ahead. Right, but then at the same time he'll he'll defend people like Charlie Sheen. So at one point he says well no Charlie Sheen's a good guy. He's a sex addict. He's a drug addict. Drug addict. But he's never done anything with children. And then he attacks Corey Feldman, who was sort of presented through the media as this sort of sympathetic figure, a trafficking right. victim, and he actually doesn't like Feldman at all. But anyway, the claim is that uh, Feldman, you... Feldman said that he had murdered River Phoenix, and that's right. not according. That's not the truth according to, of course, Albertini. But right. So uh, if you ask me, I believe Charlie Sheen more than I believe Corey Feldman. Corey no. Feldman is so fake. Everything about him is fake. And the way that he dominates those women in his band and like makes them like not eat, like they can only eat fruit and they're only allowed to go out of the room like once. Like he's a dominating psychopath for real. Like if you listen to him and that, that whole TV show he did with the Corey's Angels and he dressed up like Michael Jackson dancing and stuff for a while there. That's what Albertini says, the wannabe Michael Jackson on the, on the CPS recording. Well, that's well the fact, and I should I should apologize too, because I've brought up, and maybe I should or shouldn't apologize, I've brought up the, um, I think when you were on the show, I brought up that accusation about about Charlie Sheen, which may or may not be true. I don't mean to imply um, um, that it is. And you see that Feldman apparently will make false accusations. I mean, I don't think Albertini killed River Phoenix at any rate that it shows that something weird right. happened with River Phoenix all that however yeah so it shows he'll make false accusations right um and there's this like even bringing up Dominic Brasha which is yeah it's fully credible that he's someone who is who is abusing um I mean even Albertini says he was but uh that's some that's kind of like that's pretty low I mean that's nobody right nobody even knows who that is and yet they're claiming all these important people so why didn't Feldman name you know why didn't he name these why didn't he name these names now going back to since we brought it up because i before i forget i mean the the eddie murphy thing um with um with the the porn guy sorry um, um yeah his name was paul, uh paul baresi paul baresi paul baresi yeah. um yeah he doesn't say who hired him that's that's the interesting he doesn't oh, say who right. hired him he and he's fixing it for eddie murphy he's a fixer he said but he, well he, he said for somebody he didn't say i mean you really right. think eddie You're murphy right. is hiring people to kill it, it it's interesting he doesn't say who he, he does these things for right. he said he didn't do anything for larry flint when he was posing in these nudie magazines um mm -hmm. you know but he doesn't say who he actually worked for you know that thing albertini talks about who he works for right. and, and what he was connected with and this guy and baresi uh, who Albertini says was trying to kill him or something. Yeah, he says, like, you know, this guy this guy doesn't talk about that. So, I mean, those are, I don't know. Those yeah, are yeah I'm a out. little confused on the timeline. Maybe you guys have sifted through this and, and, and bothered to reconstruct it, but it looks to me that Albertini has had sort of conflicting, not, not conflicting things to say. Let, let's, his allegiance has shifted between mm -hmm. Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. So there are times, depending on which interview you're listening to, where he's defending Depp and saying bad things about Amber Heard's uh, lawyers. And then on the other hand, sometimes he's defending Amber Heard and then making accusations against Depp. I don't say this to imply that he's lying, but I just mean to say that uh, kind of piggybacking off what Brett said uh, here about Paul Baresi, there's a lot of internal uh, allegiance shifting 
in this whole Hollywood set where it looks like as these as these court cases develop, as the news coverage evolves, people sort of shift who's their, who their allegiance is to. And it gets mm. it gets pretty confusing. My understanding is that uh, it was um, Amber Heard's lawyers who he claims uh, Albertini claims approached him mm -hmm. to spin stories against Depp. And then somehow it ends up that he's now claiming that Baresi was intimidating him into not uh, testifying uh, against Amber Heard. So somehow there was a shift, and apparently he claims that originally it was Heard's people who hired Baresi to kill Depp. Yeah, so this, so this, yeah, so this, this Baresi guy is this like sort of middle middleman, right? Who seems like he's playing both sides for the Depp and Heard crews. And then Albertini is sort of caught in the middle, mm -hmm. and he has this ongoing sort of feud going on with Baresi, depending on how the power dynamics are shifting between the herd and Depp camps as the trial unfolds. I guess I haven't seen that Baresi is aligned with Depp. I think that Baresi's only, like, from what I've heard, is that he's connected to herd and working for her. Uh, so I don't know. And, like, if he's intimidating, um, if he's intimidating Albertini, that's to protect Yeah, that's why I Amber. said that he was okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. I mean, and like just to like filling my head with all this information before this show, it's like it kind of it's good that we can sort it out while we're here. <laughs> yeah. So should um, we should we introduce ahead. Peter Green? Well, well, yeah. Do you well, want to well, do Peter Green first? We can go to that first because that's would, the real zinger. That's the real. Uh, you know. I would. I was thinking we could talk about the Peter Green, but okay. I mean, uh, Brett, I don't know. Do you want to maybe foreground things with the movies? So, like, to, to, do you want to maybe say something about the blackout so that listeners have well, an idea well, about gonna, why? Or do well, you want to do I, it the other way kinda, around? Well, okay. I mean, I think we should talk about it after, but like, yeah, the prime audience that we're getting at is I think what Albertini is about to describe in this peter green ritual entrapment thing whatever you call it the peter green affair hmm. um what he's describing and what he says he believes he's describing he's not sure but he thinks that um this is something like a kind of hollywood ritual and you have to go through this to get famous right and the people involved which will i just maybe i let's save it like it's i don't want to give it okay. away okay okay because we can so uh we uh everyone will remember peter green from uh the movie pulp fiction he played zed uh he was the guy that had the gimp in the box and uh, he was like a cop security guard or whatever and he owned that motorcycle and um that whole situation in the basement uh i think that pulp fiction i think quentin tarantino knew this story and that influenced him while he was writing Pulp Fiction. We can talk about it after, I guess. But uh, I will share this. Um, the, uh... I think that's Peter Green's most memorable role. But at around this time when he takes off in this like late, early, mid-90s period, he also was the villain in The Mask with Jim Carrey. Right. And that's yes. where I remember him. I was like seven years old when that film came out. And I remember finding him scary scary yeah. scary yeah dude his face is like sunken in i mean he's obviously a crackhead and a junkie and um he was also in the usual suspects mm. he was uh the dude they couldn't trust that was like in california or whatever they went to a place and doing a deal with him or whatever 
Um, yeah, he was in a bunch of movies back in the 90s. Go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, Stephen has something to say about this too, but I mean, I grew up in the 90s and, you know, Peter, in, in these kind of Tarantino-esque, you know, crime dramas and dark crime dramedies and stuff were, were very much in fashion at, at the time. And some of them were really kind of hard edged. And even though Peter Green isn't really in a ton of movies and he doesn't have big roles in those movies, he is pretty singular. He's pretty memorable in the movies that he appears. Of course, you mentioned Pulp, Pulp Fiction and Stephen had a reaction to the mask. I remember the usual suspect seeing that and like he's very, you just have a sense that like either this guy's a great actor or <clears throat> this is kind of a real um, performance and he's only in a handful of movies um some of them are very like this movie bang which is this obscure <laughs> movie by sasha baron cohen's cousin or brother i think actually which is about kids that rob a bank to get on mtv and very psyopy movie but he's only in a handful of films and a lot of them are connected to this woman named marilyn vance that right. has come up in this story Right. So maybe right. Marilyn that, Vance that, is like his handler, his connection to the to the wider cult because yeah, she Vance, was involved in this story that we're going to hear. Right. Yeah, Vance is the agent who gave Peter Green the apartment in L.A. which he was staying when Albertini is going to describe the events that you're about to play. Right. Wow. But at the end of the day, I know who the service providers were. I know who the phone company was. And I know how all those records can be recovered. So okay. that's Albertini. It was speaking. a lot of years ago. But like I said, let's, let's get all this information to you, and then we could re start reconstructing the evidence. Well, and, 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 and yeah, and, and I could definitely, we have enough of a, a muscle with the sex tra traffic and stuff that, that, that we can really look into it. All right, but, what about ritual sacrifice? Well, I don't know much about that, to be honest. Okay, I'm going to name some names that you may or may not know. This yeah. is all verified, documented. I can prove this beyond any shadow of a doubt. This is what we're talking about, City Hall cover-ups. Okay. Do you know who Peter Green is? No. Peter no. Green is a big movie star. Okay. Um, we could get back and we'll get into what movies and all that kind of shit in a minute. Okay. Have you ever heard of Scott Silver? Yeah, he was good friends with Jim Hamilton, right? So Scott Silver, I just want to pause and mention to Brett that Scott Silver is co-writer of the joker i don't know if you are familiar with that uh but he is part of the joker cycle you know and um he, he also uh, he also did the dark knight with nolan right the, the most recent batman and then he also did a lot of films famous films earlier like eight mile right and uh, the, the fighter so yeah right but these um the the Batman ones specifically and the Joker ones are psyop, like drenched in psyop, you know. So I just wanted to mention that. And when people hear to the, to the end of this little portion, they'll understand why uh, he's successful actor or I mean, successful uh, Hollywood guy here. here now, Scott Silver is one of the biggest writers, producers, directors in Hollywood today. Um, isn't that yeah him and Jim, yeah I don't Maybe know you don't know Jim Hansen but Jim Hansen and him used to go way back no they from, have, from, they, from they the, were inseparable for a long time not from the Muppets no 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 not Jim Hansen from the Muppets who Jim Hansen, Jim Hansen from Fairbanks oh I don't know who that is oh, okay. I didn't know that but let me let's go to the story this happened back in 19 I want to give you the exact year 1992 it's yeah. a it's a Tuesday night 
Yeah. I'll name some names. You can write them down because some of these people are witnesses. Some of these. Hey, hey do, you, do you know George Flavor? No. Okay. All right. Keep going. I'm sorry. All right. Here, let's go back to this specific incident. I'm going to just try to give you the short version. I can fill in details later. It's a Tuesday night. I'm out with Robert Pastorelli, dead. I'm out with another guy named Big Ray O'Hagan, missing. I'm out with an actor. These are all actors. I'm out yeah. with James Remar, Tom Sizemore, Sal Jenko, and Peter Green. Yeah. We're all out. And, oh, and a guy named Paul, missing. Uh, Paul, Paul Hauser. Is that his last name? I think so, Paul Hauser, yeah. Is he missing, this guy, Paul Hauser? He is, yes. Well, I, he was for a long time, then, then they found him somewhere. I don't remember. Oh, no, no, this, this guy's missing. This guy's still missing. Oh, okay, okay. So it's a Tuesday night, and again, we're at an AA meeting, which we'll get into the trafficking through AA, because I'll name names and point fingers. Fucking Alec Baldwin. I got that son of a bitch by the balls. Because he's involved in this. Hey, Alec Baldwin was a true piece of shit back then. Oh, I got <laughs> enough information to send him to prison forever. Yeah. Now, let me tell you how this one particular night goes. This is, and there's, I, I got witnesses up the wazoo. Some yeah. of them don't even know that I'm going to call on them. Some of these people don't even like me. But the point is, they're going to tell the truth. They're going to have to tell the truth. They'll tell the truth just because they have this shit on their conscience. Right. And there's a lot of people that protected me when this happened. Yeah. This got ugly. This got yeah, real ugly. And I'm going to tell you something. And I never thought about it in these terms because I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. I don't partake in any of this QAnon bullshit. This, up until last year, all this social media stuff, I had no interest in it. The only reason I got involved is when I was called on by Amber Heard and became aware of that murder. My friend, my friend Brian, he's he's he is a fucking warrior Good. on Facebook. Uh, well, I'm not into social media. I'm banned from all social media <laughs> so for this information. <laughs> my friend Brian. What happens on the Tuesday night? Oh, and yeah. I might remember more people that were with us. It, it could change. That's just kind of like the core group. Yeah. We could get into the big AA picture later. This is yeah. a Tuesday night. We're at the Arlington Group on Melrose. Forget the cross street. It's in Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. Meeting's over, and, you know, people go out for coffee and all kinds of shit. Yeah. So we're leaving, and Peter Green wants to go to Barney's Beanery. Now, yeah. he had only had a couple of days clean and sober. None of us were interested in going there, and we were all yeah. like, nah, we're going home. Yeah. Peter convinces this guy named Paul to go to who we never seen again. He convinces yeah. this guy, Paul, to go to Barney's Beanery with him. Okay. The rest of us go home. That night, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Peter Green. He's freaking the fuck out. Babbling. I don't know what he's talking about. And he says to me, Richie, you've got to come over right away. You know, so here I am. I'm a good little AA guy. All right, I'm going to go over there and help this guy. I call his sponsor, Ray O'Hagan, who is also Johnny Depp. He was everybody's sponsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call Ray O'Hagan, and I tell him, Ray, I got to go over to Peter's. Will you come with me? He says, sure. So I zoom over to Echo Park to pick him up, and then we go to Whitley Terrace, where Peter Green lived. Listen, I, I got to ask you, do you remember little Ronnie Reagan? No. He was, he was uh, uh, Papa Reagan's son. No, I don't know him. He's staying out there. Where, at the Odyssey? Yeah. Uh, I didn't know him. 
Let's get to this murder, because this yeah. was not just a murder. This was a ritual sacrifice. What this really was, and I never thought in conspiracy theory terms, this was my test, and I, and I didn't pass. Peter Green calls me, and he tells me, you got to come over right away. you got to come over right away. So I jump in the car. I go pick up Ray O'Hagan, missing, disappeared. We get to Peter Green's place. We go up, and we knock on the door. Peter Green opens the door, and he's, like, sweating, and he's freaked out, and he turns around to us, and he says, man, like the movies. All right, whatever. And then he tells us, sorry, guys, I don't know who you are. You need to leave. So we're, like, laughing at him. I'm like, dude, you called us at 3 o'clock in the morning to come over here, and what the fuck do you want? He's like, I don't want you guys. Get out of here. So we turn around to leave. Well, he was scared. Yeah, he was scared. Let me tell you what happened. So we turn around to leave. Oh, by the way, he had blood all over him. But Peter was one of those cutters. Peter was mentally unstable. He was always cutting himself. He would cut his arms and shit like that. The guy's crazy. So he was bleeding, and he was just telling us to get out of there, so we're leaving. As we start to walk down the hallway, he says, wait, 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 guys, come here, come here, come here. So we turn around and come back. He says, come on in. He says, but before you guys come in, you guys got a promise. You got a promise on your lives that you will never, ever, ever tell anybody what you see here tonight. Yeah. Okay, no problem. We walk in, laying on his living room floor. He's a dead Mexican guy. He's covered from head to toe. He was a Mexican gang member. I don't know his name. I don't know who he that was. That was fucking Juan. That was Juan. Well, Juan's dead. And he was buck naked. He had a, yeah. bu- he had a bullet hole in the center of his forehead. His brains were all over the walls, all over the couch, all over everything. Peter Green is now on the floor, and he's picking up this guy's brains, and he's eating them. Yeah. He's got a three fifty-seven Magnum in his hand. Paul was not there. I can tell you what the scene looked like that night in the room. There was a video. I remember this explicitly because people were making fun of him. Oh, Juan is Juan dead man, Juan dead man. Well, here's what happens. The VH tape, VHS tape was missing from the camera. Peter Green is standing there with the gun. He wasn't brandishing it. He wasn't pointing it at us. But he had the yeah. gun in his hand. And he says, here's what we got to do. We got to take this body. We got to roll him up in the carpet. I got Marilyn Vance, his car. Marilyn Vance is one of the biggest producers in Hollywood. I remember. I got her car downstairs. She's in Arizona right now making the getaway with Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. We need to roll the body up in the carpet, and we need to drive to Arizona right now and bring them the body. Yeah. Okay, sure, let's do it. But, Peter, we can't do this right now. This is just this is the wrong time. I'm standing there in shock. I've, been, I've seen a lot of shit, but I've never seen anything like this. Ray O'Hagan is kind of a hardened guy. And I even remember Ray O'Hagan says to him, you know, Peter, you got a dead guy on your living room floor. Me and Ray, me and Ray convince him that we need to go get some shit and we're going to come back and we're going to help him move the body. Me and Ray leave. We went directly from that apartment to the Hollywood Division police station, which was only a half a mile away. You spent some time in jail for this, didn't you? No. I thought you did. No. 
I, no, 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 no charges filed against me. I did nothing wrong. But listen to what happened. No, but, no, but, but somebody, somebody went down for this. Nobody went down for this. Nobody. Okay. So now I go to the LAPD. LAPD takes my report. They take me and Ray O'Hagan in the car, and we go back to the apartment. Did they cuff you? No, I was never cuffed. I went in there to report a crime. When we get yeah, back, they thought. I, I, listen, they, I remember somebody. Somebody got cuffed. Not me. They might have thought I was a little bit crazy, but they never. Yeah. They never cuffed me or anything. They actually took me to the location. Okay. okay. When we get to the location, there's 50 cops. They hit the apartment. There's Peter Green, with the body, with the yeah. gun, and now Scott Silver, the Joker, the fighter. Uh, Eight Mile, he's there helping him roll up the body. Right. They're delivering this body to Van Stryker, Basinger, Baldwin. If I were That's to Mar Marilyn Vance body, is also Marilyn Vance Stryker. Guess where I would be right now? Oh, I see. Yeah, Marilyn Vance Stryker. Fuck, I don't know, man. I'd have an Academy Award. Can I just interject briefly before we finish yes. the, the, the tail end of this uh, story from Albertini? So just to make it clear to your to to your uh, listeners why this recording struck me as so interesting and why I ended up sending, sending it to Brett is that, as I mentioned, this was posted on Rumble in November of 2021. I don't know if that's the first time it was posted online. I haven't checked other websites for it, nor do I know, and this is the key detail I want to mention with regard to, to Baldwin and then also just something about Thompson. Sizemore, who Albertini mentions at the beginning of his little story about what happened on this Tuesday night at leaving the AA meeting. But um, I don't know when Albertini made this recording. As I mentioned, it's a recording he's making of himself talking to the CPS employee. And just so listeners aren't confused, at this point in the conversation, Albertini and the CPS employee, this guy named Ron Chandel, have sort of struck up a rapport because as it happens in a small world scenario, uh, the CPS employee himself, although he's originally from Northern California, he says that he had friends and family down in Southern California. So Albertini and the CPS employee were basically moving in the same Hollywood circles when they were young back in the 80s and the 90s. So this is why they're sort of talking as if they know each other, they know the same people, is that this guy who's talking to Albertini was down at the Odyssey at the same time Albertini was. But the interesting thing about the uh, the chronology here is that I don't know when this was, this recording was made, but of course, it was in October of that year when this recording was posted, October 21, that uh, the Rust shooting happened with Helena Hutchins being yes. shot by by Alec Baldwin. Right. So here's the thing. An accidental firing of a gun. So there's uh, there's a few things I want to say about about that yeah. specific that specific synchronicity or overlap or you know right. life imitating art here is that okay I would think given the um, number of people that Albertini knows and, and the fact that he's always trying to tell people all the different inside information he has I would assume that if this recording had been made uh, after that rust shooting he would have been mentioning this to to the CPS guy saying well look at what happened to look what happened right. to, to Baldwin. So my assumption is that probably this was recorded earlier in 21 before the rush shooting, and then this was released after, in November, after the shooting. But the, the reason I mentioned, I think the fact that there was the incident at Ru the rush shooting with Helena Hutchins lends credibility to some extent to, to what Albertini has to say here, because 
no one can deny that Baldwin was involved in the shooting. It has all the earmarks of some kind of contract killing. The extent to which Baldwin himself personally understood uh, understood what was going on before he fired the gun, that's speculation. But clearly, once he figured out that the gun had been loaded by somebody, uh, he would have understood that this was a contract killing and that Hutchins was murdered by somebody. So this is clearly the kind of activity that Baldwin has been involved in. That's what happened at Rust. And here's Albertini before the Rust shooting saying that this is the kind of uh, life that Baldwin's involved in. That's just the one thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is, again, very briefly, he mentions Tom Sizemore. Well, I'm sure a lot of people who listen to your work know that Tom Sizemore had a lot of problems of his own, not just substance issues. But when you had said, well, you think that Tarantino, his writing of the script of Pulp Fiction, the Zed character, may have been influenced by this story about what happened with Peter Green and, and, and the dead Mexican guy. Well, as you heard, the CPS guy says everybody was talking about this incident, like one wand and men. So Tarantino would have heard about this. But I think that this happens often because if you look at uh, what is it, 95, 96, Man's uh, Heat, Sizemore's in Heat. Well, I picked up on this rewatching Heat recently, but see, apparently Sizemore was accused of having uh, sexually abused a young girl who was like 10 or 12 years old. I haven't looked into the details of that accusation and what happened, but my understanding is that this was open, this was an open secret and common knowledge among the Hollywood people at the time in the 90s. If you rewatch Heat, in the infamous bank shootout when uh, Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro and Tom Sizemore's characters uh, rip off the bank and then try to escape, look at how Sizemore's character tries to uh, to get out of it. He grabs a young girl and uses her as a human shield. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of this potentially like interesting symbolic reference from man that he's like coding in for those who are in the know that Sizemore has that Sizemore has an issue or a proclivity with young girls. So. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that as well. Yes, it seems like the artists of Hollywood want to put what, I mean, these stories in their movies so that others that are in the know can be like, oh, yeah, I see that. Just like the occult does, you know, they, they use their symbolism and their, you know, uh, iconography and people understand the messages, people that are in the know that have eyes to see and ears to hear will I'm sure that that also works with the artists of Hollywood, like people that know the inside scoop. They want to show everybody that they know what, what you know what I mean? And, and it's like an ego thing to uh, and if they can reveal it without it being actually seen, that's um, that's kind of uh, a friend of mine, Leah Boone, calls it dark shine, where it's like an ego boost for them. And ego is their main driving force as satanic people their morality is gone and their ego uh is the main driver of their will and um it only makes sense that such psychopaths like um you know you got um the marina abramovich with rockefeller uh no with rothschild right in front of that satan uh, gathers his, yeah, yeah satan gathers his minions or legion and yep. like they're there in front like they are his legion you know um they're telling everybody without actually and it's so that dark shine is everywhere you see that all over the place and that's what you know yeah and we're gonna Go yeah, we're going to talk about how they actually, this incident, or incidents like this definitely seem to make their way into the movies. But before you start it again, Trump, back it up just a few seconds, because he's about to say, to to explain the whole kind of purport of this thing, he's going to say, 
uh, you know, if I had gone along with this, my belief is, he says, I would have won an, I'd have an Academy Award. Right. An Academy Award, he means it figuratively. Like I'd be, you know, I'd be a well-established actor right, right now. Just like uh, Scott Silver. Other people were. And just, just like, like Alec Baldwin's at the top of the pile. You know what Peter I mean? Green comes out of nowhere to become yeah. kind of a weirdly like visible household name, even though mm-hmm. he's yeah not really an actor, more of and and I want to yeah I want to talk about a movie that Green did before this, uh, after this. But unless you guys have something else to say, we can we can finish the okay. The, we get to the thrilling conclusion of this. Well, the, 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 the final thing the final thing I want to say before uh, Sean plays the rest yeah. of the clip is just that these films that Brett had told us before the interview to watch uh, the Blackout from '97 and Very Bad Things from 2001. We need to talk about those films at some point as well because I think it really fills out the the background to what it is Albertini's saying as far as how these ritualistic killings and the blackmail networks really work into right. shaping shaping scripts shaping who's allowed to produce movies shaping who's allowed to direct movies shaping how these casting decisions are made so we should definitely i think at some point get into that as well after uh, right. brett's mentioned this other film from green that he wants to discuss yeah right and uh just one more thing about the accidental shooting with rust uh-huh. the the sequence in pulp fiction was an accidental shooting. Yes. And he's holding the gun and he's talking, whatever, boom, right in the middle of his forehead, brains everywhere. They have to call a fixer. Yep. So mm-hmm. like all of that is in- right here, right here. Right. Exactly. Right in right in this story. Yes. And it's gonna come out and this is the entire plot behind uh the two thousand one very bad things, the the film that that we can right. discuss as well. Getting rid of a body. Yep. Right. Right. Hey take me and Ray O'Hagan in the car. And we go back to the apartment. Did they cuff you? No, I was never cuffed. I went in there to report a crime. When we get yeah, back, they thought, I, I, listen, they, I remember somebody, somebody got cuffed. Not me. They might have thought I was a little bit crazy, but they never, yeah. they never cuffed me or anything. They actually took me to the location. Okay. okay. When we get to the location, there's 50 cops. They hit the apartment. There's Peter Green with the body with the gun and now scott silver the joker the fighter uh eight mile he's there helping him roll up the body right they're delivering this body to van striker basinger baldwin if i would have delivered that fucking body with them guess where i would be right now fuck i don't know man i'd have an academy award yeah, yeah. Think about it. So, here, so here's what happens that night. The police well, come you out. Didn't comply. You, st- you stayed strong, man. You didn't comply with them. Listen, yeah. he, he gets out. Of, he gets arrested. They come. They arrest him. That's who was in handcuffs. Him and Scott Silver. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. <laughs> All right. So now they arrest him. Less than 24 hours later, he's released. The the report is still there 20 years later, and that's a report that we want to kind of forget about for a minute, and I'll get into the LAPD and the why in a minute. That report, that incident report exists there at that Hollywood station. Yeah. Has to. Has to. Well, it's still an open case, isn't it? Let me finish. Okay. He was released in 24 hours um, saying it was um, an accidental firing of the gun (laughs) the man was eating his fucking brains even if it's an accident the gun belonged to marilyn van striker 
The yeah. apartment was in the name Marilyn Van Stryker. He was eating the brains, and he called people to help him move the body. That report yeah. is still there somewhere. Leave it there. Let's, yeah. And I'll tell you why. So he seems pretty guilty. <laughs> you know, got a gun in his hand, eating the brains off the floor. Um, and the fact that it's a Mexican gangster, uh, that if you like, if you look into uh, SRA accounts of survivors, there would be cannibals would get Mexicans from the border. That's like, that's a common occurrence. They would get like, get a whole family for the year and put them in their freezer, you know, and then they drink the blood, they eat the meat. Like, uh, yeah, the other thing that I think adds what Albertini's having to say here, prima facie credibility, is that of all the actors in the world that he could have presumably claimed had a hand in this, he mentions Baldwin. Right. And then there's Baldwin, what, like, right at the same time this recording is being released, caught on set with the, the rush shooting and the supposed accidental shooting, which is clearly, clearly more than that. And again, look at how so far Baldwin walks. Exactly. Just like. Just, just like here, Albertini's claiming was the case with silver and Albert, uh, silver and uh, and uh, green. So, just like uh, uh, William Burroughs shot his wife in the head, and then he gets released from jail, you know, and then he works for the government. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, so, I think shooting in the head is probably one of the main, uh, pl- uh, you know, they they have like a script, you know, and they probably choose okay. We'll do the head shooting one, you know, like that's what they did to JFK. It's very, you know, it, it really is a striking thing to see brains everywhere. Uh, anyway, go ahead, Brett. I thought you were going to say something. Well, yeah, a few, a few things. I mean, oh, okay. Well, as for the ritual aspect. So, I mean, one thing that makes opportunity credible is he, he characterizes this as a ritual, but he doesn't claim a definitive knowledge is he's just saying that like look how else do you explain this the guy's mm. shot right in the forehead he's naked for some reason right and the brains are splattered and then green is why is he and i I've thought about this like why why is he eating them in front of them like i think that's part of it too right like, he um well he's gonna has he said this yet or is he going to say this that you know green has a gun he's not pointing it at him he just seems very and if you look at peter green in movies like would you want to be you got you can really picture that scene of like you want to be around this well but brett <laughs> you know, you, brett you know the thing he's going to mention here in just a second and this is like i think kind of a way a waypoint to just flag this so we can re- circle back later when we get into the, the the discussion about very bad things but then also uh the blackout and then the stuff with the Mossad connection with uh, Ami Shafir and the phone sex lines and the modeling agencies, the trafficking. Then ultimately, when you get into the David Rademacher or uh, Kimberly P- Pendelios murder, snuff. He's about to mention VHS. It's right. very – he mentions just very cryptically there's this missing VHS tape. I think the implication is for everybody who's gone down the David McGowan rabbit hole whole red program to kill knows about jeffrey dahmer a lot of these killers who are filming their crimes i think that albertini is implying that green insofar as this was a ritualistic hit some sort of initiation of course yeah deliver the body to baldwin the whole nine yards but it was filmed and i right. think that there is an implication that green was also making a snuff film Yes. Uh, to basically blackmail himself so that he could be relied on and then so that this could be distributed through whatever kind of network that Albertini later on goes uh, goes on to describe that was coming out of the Viper Room and coming out of the Odyssey through these Eddie Nash people and these other pornographers. 
Okay. Well, if I, yeah. So a word about Baldwin and then, and then green. So I, I gather what's being kind of implied here about Alec Baldwin is that, how do you put it? I mean, he runs, he, he's something like a kind of Hollywood intelligence agent, right? A sort of internal Hollywood intelligence agent. And who knows, you know, what other connections that he has now. I, 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 after I first listened to this recording, I went back and I, I'd seen the remake of the getaway. I've seen the original version of the getaway, the Sam, you know, the, the famous 1972 Sam Peckinpah version with Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw, which is a great movie. Even if you don't like Sam Peckinpah. That Sorry, one, I'm gonna but, I'm gonna refill my coffee. So don't ask me a question. But it's just it was one which that. That's good. But the and, and it's, it seemed like a slam dunk to remake a movie like that, especially like kind of a '90s action movie. But that the movie The Getaway is I I, I honestly I I thought it wasn't good. I remember it not being good. I planned to watch the whole thing. It was so bad I couldn't get through 20 minutes of it. And it's not just that it was bad, okay. And I, and I'm not being sarcastic or anything, but I've it 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 was eerie because I've had this suspicion about certain projects that they're not made to make money they know they're not going to to make money that's really not what they're what they're about not, not they're not about a message or anything else it's just they seem like they're usually these b movies that seem there's important people will be in them washed up people will be in them they don't make any money they're over budgeted money laundering and you could see, like, this is who's in it. Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger's like a totally a rising star at this point. There's no, you can tell she's she's throwing in the towel in this performance. Like she's just cashing in. And Baldwin is just <laughs> there's this isn't even acting. Like Baldwin was an occasional actor. He's not that great. He usually played the kind of jerk that he is known to be in Hollywood. Um, and then he, you know, the kind of personality who's caught on actual recordings, who sounds, you know, it sounds like it's right out of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, like those recordings to his daughter <laughs> or whatever. But so he's kind of a jerk. Everybody knows that. And he plays those jerky characters, but usually he doesn't even try acting. I mean, he's really seems kind of, kind of like in terms of the craft, totally lazy, right? Like not a, not a serious actor. And that movie is case in point. So what is going on there? And now, according to Albertini, a dead body is being brought, I gather, to the set of this movie where Marilyn Vance, who's not a news that doesn't normally produce movies. She produced a handful of movies and she um, she's a, a costume designer, hairdresser or something like that. Right. But the movies that she's produced are kind of interesting. Um, and one of them is a movie called Judgment Night from 1992, which Okay, I'm going to say it again. Like, I watched, I'd never seen that movie before. I remember growing up, I was a kid, I was too young really to care about it, but I remember seeing enough MTV to see it was being heavily promoted, had Emilio Estevez, and um, and I watched it, and, and there's not even a movie there. It's hard for me to believe that Hollywood would put that kind of budget and just sort of throw in the towel. They don't have a full plot, and they have Jeremy Piven playing the same Jeremy Piven character in Very Bad Things, the same Jeremy Piven character in... Um, say anything or a number of movies the same kind of you know very blackmailable <laughs> Jeremy Piven uh, uh, character um, in that movie Judgment Night but it's about a bunch of guys who in a sort of variant of the scenario they like come across a dead body and then they're being hunted by these goons among whom it, well, the leader of them is uh, Dennis Leary and it's set is it set in bought no it's set in chicago and it's obvious that there's this like racial element right it's these white guys going into the ghetto and stuff but they have to have because it's hollywood's super politically correct always has been so they have to have like white all white thugs like and they right. get so it's leery 
And the but the his sidekick is Peter Green, who kind of steals the show because unlike Leary, Peter Green, I'm not making any accusations, but I suspect I mean he comes from the underworld. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Right. And so yeah, so he's part of the Viper Room scene. That's how Albertini would be hanging out with him, because Albertini's in the Viper Room and Green is in the Viper Room. How Maryland in the AA has- meetings. I think about how many messed up Hollywood like people that are spit out from all the SRA and all the abuse and all the, and they're like self-medicating with alcohol and drugs. Like I'm sure the AA meetings oh. in LA are a trip. Like okay, just the well, so, Green, so Green was, you know, Green is in the media in the nineties for his heroin problems and stuff. Right. And, crack and so he seems crack. to come from this underworld. That's how he seems to get into, into movies. Uh, a movie called The Laws of Gravity is one of his first ones. But I wanted to mention a movie called Clean Shaven, which it's an art movie I saw. Here it is. I have it up. just wanted to look at the description. It's a movie called Clean, Shaven, a 1993 movie. Now, when is this happening? Is it before or after the release of this movie? This is September 5th, 93. It's released. So you mean when, is... when, when, when was the supposed ritual murder? Yeah, because I think he was in he Judgment said it was Night. Albert, yeah, Albertini claims oh. it was 92. Okay, so, so Judgment is... Night is 93. This movie is 90. So these are all after. Every, yeah, pre- so, no, see, Brett, after. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. Pulp Fiction is, just... is 95, right? Yeah, see, look, the, the, the filmography... The filmography, okay. the, the filmography, Green's filmography lines up with this with Albertini's thesis that he takes off right at like in basically ninety three because I think I think the mask was ninety three so it's right basically within a year or two of this this night supposedly haven't happened that he begins getting cast in all these major, you know, A list movies. Right. So a, and so the nineties big... was a big shift in music too, like ninety three, ninety two, ninety three. Like the hair bands were gone. All of a sudden, like uh, metal, like tool, and like the there's all the heroin chic, and like all of this like grunge stuff. Um, you know, Jerry Garcia died. Like that, no more Grateful Dead. Like it's they're shifting into this new satanic era, and like Nine Inch Nails was very anti-Christian. Like they would just like beat down on Christians, and then by '99, like we had the films like. Um, uh, the one well, does it, yeah, so but if i could come back to to green so the the through line here right with with green's career right first of all with the whatever the organized or the the criminal underworld sort of uh, dark underworld overlap and how that is reflected in his roles in his career right mm-hmm. he seems to be kind of playing roles similar to what he might be witness to let's say right and so but this movie clean shaven he plays this um uh like mentally ill schizophrenic um guy and it's more of it's more of an art film and the very beginning of the film shows him apparently killing a child and it it plays a bunch of like mental tricks with you this movie i don't know but i but i i remember him from that movie um as well the guy that directed it seems like a little like tiny little art film but the guy that directed it has gone on to be hasn't done many things but he's gone on to direct like episodes of homeland and the americans and these you know, uh, Fed, Fed like, sponsored yeah. uh, uh, media, right? So we can go down a lot of those rabbit holes. I just want to add that about about Green and and Green's career, though. Right. And Sean, may I just say one yes. quick thing about Please like uh, Green sort of hollywood aesthetic like lining up aligning with like the, the shift in the music industry that you noted mm-hmm. as well. I mean, doesn't Green sort of look like he's like out of central casting for like a Smashing Pumpkins fan? <laughs> 
right? When, yeah. Right. When you th- when you think about like that early '90s, like you know, right. gothy kind of like tortured, deep sort sunken of... eyes and like the, high this on is like, drugs and like. Yeah. I was a huge black. Smashing Pumpkins fan. Hey, 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 there's nothing to be ashamed of there. At right. the time, I, at the time, I was I love Green Day. So you know that was. The big, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. That was that was the that was the big division. Is did you love Green Day or did yeah. you love Smashing Pumpkins? But yeah. I mean, my point is like you know, Peter Green looks like he just should have been like you know try to get on stage and at a, at a Smashing Pumpkins concert. So right, he looks like look the at... guy that you would that would sell you the heroin in the corner at the party. <laughs> but if you look at Marilyn Vance, right? So just her her producer credits, apart from her costume designer, her first producer credit is a movie called The First Power. This I've never seen it. The satanic movie from. I can't 1990. Okay. And then her next credit is Judgment Night. And then her next credit is The Getaway. Okay. And then Time Cop, which is a MK movie. I mean, so what I mean, this is weird. And she's not in that many things. She does like a Paula Abdul video after that. And then she does some kind of like uh, Skinamax kind of stuff. And that's it. There's 14 credits here. Time okay. Cop. Uh, so, I think MST3K did Time Cop. I recognize that one. I remember that one. I I think that accentuates the the Marilyn Vance angle here, and and you know what what Albertini right. is saying that she's got some weird role in this. Is she really right. a producer? Is my question. Is this is this really a Much Hollywood like, producer? Well, think about it. Much like uh, the uh, Tuesday Weld, you know, she was slated to be an actress. But she didn't really do much, and she ended up just um, retiring into doing the occult workings. Like she, she has a status level in the dark occult. Um, that's why they gave her the. I mean, to give her movie roles and to put her up like, uh, you know, the the Church of Satan guy dedicated his book to her. You know, like Anton Levey. Yeah. yeah, Anton Levey. Exactly. Like it, it's um, they they put these people up on purpose because they have uh roles in the cult that they're already worshipped here like that nobody knows but it's like a revelation uh it's like an unveiling where well, but, we but don't actually biggest... know but it's truly uh like lady gaga is in there with she's in this the structure just like madonna you know what i mean they have uh Anyway, go ahead. Well, I would just say Vance is one, is one of the biggest costume designers in, in the business. I mean, her credits are right. pretty much off the chart, going back to Pretty Woman, Die Hard 2. I mean, it's just, you know, so she's a huge costume designer, but only a kind of handful of production credits. Right. I think at some point, you know, I know we're building up to this because it's something that Albertini mentions as well. But it's like we get into the David Rademacher murder of Kimberly Pendelios and so there's like multiple layers to the corruption and this Peter Green story is sort of the bottom of the barrel about what, what's really going on. And so like when you right. play when you play the remainder of the clip, I just want people to pay attention to 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 the illusion that Albertini makes to VHS. Because I think the oh, we already that, heard that. That was Oh, so you play. got so you play yeah. this one. So yeah, exactly. Right. So you know the way that, and this gets into the movie that, that Brett had me watch, the blackout with Dennis Hopper and Matthew Modine, but it's like you have you have the model agencies, you have the sex phone lines, and then believe you know below that you have the prostitution rings, right. and then at the deepest like layer of hell you have snuff. Right, and it, and so it's all it's SRA all the way down. That's yep. what Kubrick was showing us in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, all the females like they all have red hair. They're all owned by the cult. Like, you know, um, uh, the wife Alice is one of the maidens from the cult she's just a little older she's just a breeder now like 
the whole like it it shows us the life and then we see like the little kid is dissociated and wearing the butterfly and then uh you know lily soblieski is like being trained to to uh have sex with men for money and to be used for blackmail in this little right. room, he, he, glass yeah, doors tells, right she's the, the one lock on the outside like to catch them in there with the camera you know what i mean so everything and, can be filmed go ahead isn't she the one that tells bill like what kind of cloak he'll need right yes. so you, she's, she's in a movie she's in a movie called Gla the glass house too right right well that's um, another that's more uh uh like internal um uh, mpd type stuff right isn't that film about that I, you know, I haven't seen that in a long time, but right. I, I don't know if you're playing any more of the, the clip, but just to kind of set up at least the, well, one direction we want to go with explaining what, what is this kind of ritual? What does it have to do with getting an Academy Award? And right. there's um, well, I, it, I, I, yeah, yeah. Sean, I just want to say that uh, it's it, like, to me, it's obvious that it's blackmail and blackmail is what runs Hollywood and Hollywood is actually a porn agency. Like the actresses, like look at the MGM lot back in the beginning. They had a brothel like on the lot. You know, the the guy, the mayor, whatever, would like push Jimmy Stewart into the brothel because he thought he was queer. You know, like it's like the the actresses sure, in the movies. Robert, yeah, and Robert Mayhew was you know using actresses for entrapment of foreign diplomats and this kind right. of stuff on record. But I mean specifically here, there's. I, before I heard this clip, okay, I I don't know where I heard. There's a kind of call it a persistent rumor that, like, one thing they would do to people to to for them to get fame or get in the Illuminati or whatever is that you're invited to some kind of party and you're drugged, and you're told later that you killed a prostitute or you know something like this, and then other people had to cover it up. They were called in, and then there's a group of you that were involved, and there's. Well, that's and, one and, way. I mean, and one many. thing that that kind of like my spider sense goes off when I hear that because it's like, well, you, I don't know if that's true or not. Okay. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm not a witness to these things. I don't know, but it's a trope in movies. Did someone who made that <laughs> right. up, did they get that from the movies? Because it, how did it get there? Right. Did it get into the movies from real life or from real life from the movies? And actually, you'll find in real life, it's a, it's a, it's a loop, it's a feedback loop and it's right. very complicated. But what we're saying is, there's a connection between this trope appearing in movies and this what, what he's describing in this story, which Albertini at least says he has reason to believe is a common thing that goes on to get people right. fame in Hollywood, including Scott Silver, a writer of 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 Joker. Right. Um, so, well, that's, I mean, Brett, that's I'm not the same sure. way with the with the uh, like the occult orders of the Freemasons and the Jesters, and you know, like if you can agree to do more immoral more evil stuff and still keep it a secret then you get promoted right i mean it seems the same and hollywood started with uh money from the jewish mafia right it's all one big like cluster of immorality and evil and domination and slavery uh you know the the technology of filming allows them to blackmail and once they get people in, then they can continue the work, just like the government, you know, they can, uh, everybody's compartmentalized and following orders because there's all that blackmail out there. That's what Jeffrey Epstein was doing. That's why, uh, that's probably why Peter Green was given that house by uh, the, the, the producer lady there, because 
I'm sure it's wired for more than just the VHS camera. I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff there. I mean, who? anyway, that's an assumption, but still, uh, that's how it works. Like blackmail is, is the currency that keeps the engines moving because they okay. can just make more money. Like whatever about money, who cares? Like it's, it's children, victims, blood, blackmail. Like that is the currency that fuels the dark occult. And Do you want to? Do you want to just maybe follow the blackmail blackmail line down from what Albertini? Well, that's has that's to how say. Albertini got into this in a way, right? Yeah. That's what so, he got I mean, into Hollywood. Yeah. Do you want do you want to maybe to just kind of briefly describe what what Albertini says because he gets into into the blackmail component fairly extensively in this interview. But you know, the other thing I wanted to mention just briefly is like Brett, when you when you talk about how there's this trope or this recurring rumor that's that that swirls out of Hollywood about people being set up in such a way that they're led at the very least led to believe that they killed somebody whether or not they did I mean this is exactly the what's driving the plot between the 97 film you told me to watch the blackout but I think that this is a sort of form of a fairly obvious psychological manipulation and trauma is that even if you never in fact killed somebody being told by people that you're in a position to have to trust or that you know are going to be uh, are operating on the assumption that you did in fact do that, that itself is traumatizing, not knowing whether you actually did this sort of thing or not. And so I think there's a, there's a kind of element of psychological warfare and trauma and sort of lesser magic just telling people, hey, you know, you woke up in this hotel room, you don't remember what you did, you don't know who you're with, and you just have to rely on somebody else who fills in the details for you. That's a very psychologically uh, manipulative and, and controlling situation to be in. You're already, as it were, being handled, even if you're not being blackmailed. And in fact, I mean, the, 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 the level of control here is that you're in effect being told that you are going to be blackmailed, for something that you're not even in a position to know whether you even really did it and how you would actually disprove that you did it if if you think you didn't do it. So uh, anyway. That also features in Eyes Wide Shut when um, when he confronts Mandy, Mandy's dead body. And he's like, he recognizes that his actions is what killed her, you know? Um, that in itself, like, that is featured. And, and then in the billiard room, uh, there's a veiled threat where he says, you know, people die all the time, you know, you know that. And, you know, it's like, keep living until you don't. And he's like grabbing him by the shoulders. Like it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a threat. And it's like, you work for me, buddy. And like, uh, it, when you mess around, you get people killed. So you better shut up and believe what I tell you, you know, <laughs> um, that's, that's like that's how all power works it's really and the idea of like uh drugging someone and then making them believe they killed um that happens all the time to the little kids in sra uh jay parker a guy that i know personally um they killed his little friend when he was like five years old and they tried to tell him that he that he did it like or he had to kill a uh, like his dog too like that trauma is like it, it cuts deep and it 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 gives like, you a guilt it gives you a guilt complex which makes yes. you manipulatable but you know the, the, the blackmail component because there's so much here you john you dug out these old uh, articles i don't know where they're maybe from the la times or i don't know but you got them off the internet archive right. about the, the about the pendelios murder there's a little detail in there that i want to just highlight before maybe we get into more of the specifics about who she was who her murderer was 
why Albertini's mentioning this and how it fits into this whole Hollywood blackmail snuff operation. But there's a in one of the articles you sent, there was a per, a man who was uh, off roading in the national forest where she was eventually found to have been murdered, and he says that when he came across the campsite at which she was at, there were three men there. Right. And so I, I want to eventually discuss why I think that's a significant detail. But according to Albertini. Uh, he was using a different surname when he was a business partner with this guy, Ami Shafir. Uh, I think Albertini says that his fake surname for these companies was Hardin. And I think there's actually kind of like a pretty blatant sexual innuendo in that choice of surname when you understand that they were running sex phone lines, Hardin, haha. But um, so the idea is that uh, Albertini goes on to explain in this recording here to the CPS guy that uh, he was business partners with this guy named Ami Shafir, who Albertini alleges was in fact a Mossad agent or Mossad asset. But the one thing that uh, Albertini can confirm is that the people who were running a lot of the tech for this uh, sex phone line operation were uh, ex Mossad guys, so the 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 line that 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 Albertini ends up giving about Mossad, and I kind of want to throw this out here to see what you guys think about it. This to me is one aspect of where Albertini is potentially a disinfo agent, uh, or I question the truth of what he's having to say. Is that Albertini repeatedly tells the CPS guy and then others whom he's uh, been interviewed by as well. That he doesn't think that um, the operation that he was running with Shafir, uh, with the sex phone lines and these other things, and the Jeffrey, even the Jeffrey Epstein Maxwell thing, was an actual Mossad, Israeli government sanctioned operation. He tries to draw this distinction and he claims, no, these are private surveillance, private blackmail operations that are run by former intelligence people who take the knowledge that they were, that they learned and were trained with, and then they go into business for themselves. Yeah, but who hires them? Well, so here's the point though. You know, everybody, I mean... well, not only who hires them, but also, I mean, this is in a way a kind of classic intelligence front. It's like sheep dipping, right? So everybody right. knows. So, I mean, so, and, and Albertini is smart enough to know that that kind of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he doesn't, to me, like even mention that as a potential explanation of how these supposed ex Mossad guys are, in fact, still working for Mossad or at least some other intelligence service, that to me is a little bit of diversion on his part. I don't think it ultimately calls into question what it is he has to say about what's going on. So just to bring listeners up to speed, Albertini goes into considerable detail about how, you know, in the 90s and into the early aughts, like before the internet really took off, like apparently sex phone lines were very popular. Right. And so what Albertini- 900 said, line, one 900. So what Albertini was doing with this guy, Ami Shafir, was they were running all these sex phone line operations where they would have all these people from LA and all around the country call in. And he says, you learn their sexual proclivities so you can ensnare them later. You're recording them. You have their names. You have their phone numbers. You have their addresses. Credit card information too, right? So, th so then he says, well, they would extort people. So you, you know, if people don't want to pay their bill or you want to overcharge them, you can extort them. You can blackmail them. So basically what it was was it was a, a honey trap or an entrapment scheme through these sex phone lines. And Albertini was talking about how this information that would be gathered on people would just be spread around. And this is how you control people. He mentions how even apparently like they were also running psychic lines. And there was a L.A. judge who was supposedly calling one of their psychic lines and using the psychic to decide how to rule on cases. Wow. So. So when they found that out, they were blackmailing this judge. So anyway, point is- That makes total or, sense. I mean, that's yeah, how so, <laughs> Israel works. Like, that's why they have power. 
So, so the point is there's this huge blackmail component. The other aspect is – and this came out with the Epstein stuff when everybody found out Maxwell, Robert Maxwell. But like – so all the like telecommunication software, like the Promise software with Danny right. Castellaro. So right. all of our – all of our telecommunication like infrastructure and app apparatus basically was Mossad. Right. But but this was all given like commercially. So like everything that we're all using, we're basically like just by buying, you know, buying a phone, mm-hmm. using a laptop, like right. you're already basically part of a of a Mossad honey honeypot, whether you right. know it or not, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. Um but 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 um so I don't know, Brett, do you want to say something about who David Rademacher was and what was going on with that murder there? Because I think it kind of gets into the darker stuff that like Peter Green and these other guys were potentially involved in yeah, with I, like I this with, with the snuff and all that. Well, that Rademacher specifically, I don't know that much about the case. I mean, I first learned about it there and I looked it up and, you know, it's a real case. The speaking again about kind of like uh, tropes, you don't know where they originated in movies or in real life and that kind of like fake-ish fashion photographers luring models mm-hmm. i mean that is so common mm-hmm. right especially in b movies and um yeah there's this one i can't remember the name of it now it's about a uh cameraman who's like stalking women also running pretending to be a fashion it's just so yeah it's just so it's typical right yeah well uh, i think yeah. brett do you want to tell everybody about the blackout and, and what that movie's oh. about so i mean it's a fascinating film. There's okay. so much to say about it, but I think it's directly relevant to so much of what we've sort of been touching on already with with what Albertini has to say about Hollywood. So yeah, so the blackout is the biggest hangout on on what we're talking about. This idea, okay, to sum up that to people to break through, let's say actors to to break through and in, into Hollywood and and to and to make the next step and. Uh, you know, you you have to undergo this kind of ritual. They invite you to some kind of party and they drug you or something. And then they claim that you killed a prostitute or you did something right. And that there was a cover up. OK, OK, that I mean, that's what this movie is about. And it's directed by Abel Ferrara, who. Uh, I mean, I was a gigantic, uh, you know, film junkie, film buff and Abel Ferrara was one of my favorite directors, which, you know, you weren't supposed to say kind of like the the film school crowd really detested Ferrara. And I was just looking up some recent articles, even from the 2010s. And, you know, they even they interview him, they call him like the master of bad taste and, <laughs> and stuff like this. But and I mean, I, I can talk more about Ferrara in a second because he's someone who comes from the underworld of the porn industry and um is was catholic and now is i don't know he claims you know i I like buddha and jesus and whatever but he was interesting for being kind of like those guys (laughs) he's compared to score he's compared to scorsese and Hmm. you know and by the way i mean his his movie bad his film bad lieutenant from 92 with harvey keitel is one of scorsese's favorite films and i I saw that movie in the in a a theater in uh Hmm. um new in um uh the dryden theater in the but the eastman house which is where martin scorsese keyed a lot of it's like one of the biggest film archives but they show movies like a repository theater and i actually saw that print there nice um so yeah so so ferraro is sort of a this i don't know what you call this but he has all these big actors like christopher walken and harvey keitel and all these big actors and actresses work with him even though his reputation is really mixed and he had this kind of sleazy uh reputation um but so he made this movie 
the the blackout uh, which stars Matthew Modine as a Hollywood actor who's got you know serious substance abuse problems. And at the beginning of the movie, I believe it's been about a year since I saw it, so you might have to correct me. But he's with this this one like French model, and but he's just spinning out of control with his drinking. And I guess he finds out she had an abortion, which this is kind of an issue in this movie that shows you a little bit of the at least whatever you want to call it, sort of Catholic preoccupations of Ferrara. I mean, I'm not saying Ferrara is really a you know, counter Hollywood figure genuinely, but um, he, he, these themes are still there, right? And his in his movies, and so this is seen as a bad. It's like abortion is portrayed as a bad thing. You'd have to say in this in this movie. That's good. And he's very he's very depressed about it, and um, so he goes on a, on a binge, and he ends up with this this Dennis Hopper character. Right? So we have this, you know, the, the whole Dennis Hopper rabbit hole. Dennis Hopper playing right. You know, uh, uh, this this what do you want to call him? This well, he's a he's a he's a sex he's a sex club. Uh, he runs a sex club, uh, basically a prostitution ring. And I think the implication is he also makes snuff. And he's involved in blackmailing Hollywood yep. actors Every, in these, in these operations. And he's yep. uh, something out of a David Lynch movie, right? Like something out of like like the uh, in, in Wild at Heart. I'm thinking of the Will Poe characters. I mean, he's something like that. But yeah. anyway, so Modine ends up with this. Uh, this the actress is very striking, and I remember her because I was also I hate to say it, I was a fan of Gregor Rocky's movies, and she appears. Uh, Sarah Lasses, Lasay, L A S S E Z. She appears in. Uh, the movie Nowhere, which is an interesting sort of psyopy related uh, cultural engineering related movie, Gregor Rocky's Nowhere, um, and so she's this this this. I don't remember exactly who she is, a waitress or something. Who he thinks he kills. He's led to believe later he kills. Later on, a year later, he's with Claudia Schiffer in a rare. Uh, role it's just weird all of the kind of crossover with the modeling industry in the well family. yeah i mean so, so hold on. There, there, there's a bit of a plot twist so for, i'm going to ruin the movie for anybody who hasn't seen it but i do think that the, the movie's worth watching even if you know how the movie ends because it's fascinating irrespective of like knowing what's going on so yeah brett the actress you mentioned mentioned sarah lasses or whomever she plays what's who's called annie number two but Annie number one is the French model who you mentioned, who was played by Beatrice Dali or Dahl. But so in the film, the way that it works is that the Modine character is tormented over the idea that he thinks he may have killed Annie number one, the French woman. Okay. And then it turns out at the end of the film, he finds out that he did kill Annie, but it wasn't Annie number one, the French model he killed it was actually annie number two the waitress that he met after he went on the bender and he didn't actually think that he potentially killed her so there's a bit of a twist where the audience finds out that the entire time that the modine character is concerned he killed annie it turns out he did kill annie but he didn't kill the annie he thought he did the annie he thought he may have killed the french woman actually comes back and visits him in miami when he goes down to Miami to try to track down the Dennis Hopper character to figure out where he thinks that Annie, the French Annie, is because he thinks she's gone missing because he hasn't heard from her in almost two years after he leaves Miami and moves up to New York. So when his girlfriend at the time, the Susan character, goes on a business trip, he goes down to Miami to try to get to the bottom of where uh, Annie, the French woman, went. And he thinks that maybe she's dead and that he killed her, and he finds out, no, she's actually alive. And it's that he's killed this uh, the second Annie, the waitress. One final just bit about that. I know you guys know, know William Ramsey, all the work he's done on the smiley face killings. Well, 
the the waitress Annie number two her name tag has a smiley face on it hmm. so I don't know yeah, those, what's going that's on everywhere like I was in white noise I was in like a lot of different movies that they, they folded in it's, mm-hmm. yeah and uh people should check out uh William Ramsey's uh work about that he did a show uh and he did a book just recently smiley face killers and you can find that at williamramseyinvestigates.com so okay do we want to continue listening to this or do you want to do the albertini Mossad video uh where do we um i mean a few more things about yeah and thank you for for clarifying all i mean it's like kind of variations on this theme right and the movie plays with the uncertainty of what he's guilty of and guilt mm-hmm. and ostensibly is a whatever kind of quote catholic theme but yeah i mean it, it's um so th- this looks like the peter green uh kind of thing in a way okay so that's that's the point uh with that one. and then there's all just the the people involved in this this production i mean i think are are worth highlighting um one of the producers uh gianni Nunari has done, you know, like Shutter Island and uh, let's see. Um, Wasn't that Scorsese? I thought that was Scorsese. Yeah, Seven. Um, So some interesting critics. I I think even more interesting here was this fellow. Yeah, Mark Damon, who I think is like a, um, well, I'm just looking at the credits, but the producer Mark Damon was involved. I, I those those really. If you know, did you ever see Flight of the Navigator back in the eighties? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that there's is, a pedo symbol on the stairs. Oh my gosh! And it's of it's the like spaceship. NASA, it's like NASA programming. And, right. I mean, that is so. That that is like so. And then this. He and also, the triangle within the triangle. The spot. The triangle spiral and he he also stares to that little thing where the kid goes up and gets abducted by the alien and flies around in the spaceship yeah so the same guy produces mac and me if you remember (laughs) that as well as the lost boys right speaking of right some of the stuff you just mentioned right Mm. Uh, some of those things so nine and a half weeks which is um 80 sexual revolution the never-ending story i mean so uh wow like a lot of really Mm. uh, suspicious credits and then who else did i have on this one um yeah and then anyway but what was the other film you want to talk about too. Well, before uh, we get into the massage stuff, can I, okay, yeah, can I, can, can I just mention a few things that just straight comments about, uh, about the blackout? Sure. Yeah. Cause I just, I just think there's like something going on that actually, I think explains maybe the psychology behind why would someone like Peter Green become the kind of guy he is? Cause I think in like the research that we all do, you get to these points where you start wondering like what motivates these people to, to be to be the way they are right and it's difficult Satanic for... ritual abuse usually yeah and it well but no but then you but then you get to a point where it's like you know why do they participate in it like even if they're mm-hmm. victims themselves because not everybody who's a victim goes on to perpetuate that 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 uh that, they that can, abuse that's true but they can some some brains they just dissociate some brains actually fracture all the way and they never have morality again they become psychopaths well, so I think so, this is actually kind of one of the key takeaways, and this this is an element I think of the revelation of the method in the blackout is not it's not only showing how is it that Hollywood actors are controlled through blackmail, 
uh, and trauma themselves, but also how those uh, rituals and, and, and life events um, shape shape their own psychology so that they become useful to the cult. So that in a exactly. way, the in a way that the blackmail almost becomes OTOs, it's unnecessary. Because if you look at the the character the character arts character arc psychologically speaking of the Matthew Modine character, just to briefly summarize what happens is that as Brett mentioned, when the film begins, he's just sort of like dissolute, sort of just uh promiscuous party boy who's lost he's obviously depressed he's very self-involved but there's not a sense in which you would consider him i think clinically psychopathic he's not like a homicidal like oh, right right dangerous I'm person the, i'm talking about people like peter green oh no but what i'm saying is by the end of the film in the blackout i think abel ferrari has shown us how you become peter green I in see. other words the matthew modine character what i'm saying is that there's this right. journey where i think what you're being shown in part is through the sequence of events how he is shaped to become to come outside out out the door as it were into this sort of more peter green as character because at the beginning of the film brett talks about like the sexual morality the element of this abortion and stuff so what goes on is that he is in miami he's left hollywood because he's in a way kind of sick of being a hollywood actor and so he comes out to miami he's partying and he falls in love with this beautiful french model and, and he eventually proposes to her and it's clear that he had had cold feet. And what you end up coming to see is that she had recorded, I think, a voicemail that he had left on her phone at one point when he was already blacked out. So he has this history of blacking out through his substance abuse, and he had left a voicemail telling her that he didn't want her to keep the kid. And he says, like, F the child, F, F everything. So he, in a blackout state, had encouraged her to have an abortion. Now, when the film is – when we're being shown what's going on, we don't know at the time that he didn't know that already. So when he proposes to her, he thinks that he's never told her that. She apparently agrees to marry him, so she has a ring. And then later on, after she's just agreed to marry him and he thinks everything's going to shape up nicely, that's when she discloses to him that no, actually, she's had an abortion. And then he gets angry at her. Because he thinks like, well, why did you do that? And then that's when she plays the recording and lets him know, no, 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 you told me that you wanted me to do this. So they have a falling out, and then this is when he goes on a party binge with the Dennis Hopper character where he goes back to the sex club and then ends up getting sort of entrapped into uh, accidentally murdering the second Annie, mm -hmm. the waitress. But by the end of the film, what happens is, spoiler alert, he swims out into the ocean presumably to commit suicide and his girlfriend from new york susan has flown down to find him because she knows that he's relapsed he'd been sober for a year he's drinking again so she comes down to in effect rescue him and what he tells her is that he doesn't love her so one of the kind of things that's going on in the film is that the the director is studying people's psychology about what what love is or how they view other people and one of the main character flaws of this matthew modine character is that he doesn't really actually love anybody else he's always just worried about whether others love him and so because he has this sort of self-occupation where he can't really actually love other people but he's always just worried about whether they're validating him he pushes people away this is what he does to the first annie then obviously he kills the second woman accidentally but so at the end of the film when susan comes down to see him 
he tells her that he doesn't love her and then he swims out to maybe uh, to, 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 to die in the ocean. But then there's this ambiguity because it looks like right before the film ends that maybe he actually starts filming to sh filming back to shore. Okay, so it looks like he doesn't really maybe have the nerve to kill himself or it's unclear. And you're shown this split screen. And on the left part of the scene, the screen is what I take to be his own internal fantasy, where he pictures himself with embracing this like half naked woman who says, I love you. And it's clear from the fantasy that he's imagining this woman who's returning to him, regretful that she had left him, telling him, I love you, which is exactly how we start the movie where he wants the French Annie to come back to him. And he's pining for her and she doesn't. Then the movie ends with Susan coming down to save him right but he rejects her but so that then is Abel, a proclamation of love to like go and fly and so, try to so save this is so i think this is the thing about disassociation disassociation and fantasy the director is showing us if you look at the woman on the split screen at the very last shot of the film that he presumably is imagining coming down to save him and telling her telling him that he loves her she doesn't look like Annie 1, the French model. She doesn't look like Annie 2, the waitress, nor does she look like Susan, his current girlfriend. She's almost this sort of composite of all three. So it's like this, this imaginary fantasy girl where basically I think what, what you're being shown is that his driving underlying motivation throughout the film is he's chasing this woman that literally doesn't exist. And that I think it could also be the triple goddess too like the the goddess is maiden mother crone like there's three anyway go ahead yeah. so the final thing i want to say about this is that i think the way a lot of these guys gets get entrapped in these blackmail schemes is the psychological temptation where they're being exploited i think they're they're handled and when people find out in these businesses like oh here's a guy a peter green guy a matthew medine character guy he's broken he's looking for love he's susceptible to this kind of manipulation because we know he's looking for this sort of relationship with a woman this idealized idea of what it is he needs and you can exploit that and you can throw women at him and you can manipulate him and you can put him in situations where he will be blackmailed if he didn't have that sort of underlying issue that he was that with where he's looking for for a kind of relationship that just isn't possible well so to contextualize that i mean ferrara is pretty well known for for making kind of psycho autobiographical um movies you know bad lieutenants about a cop that people think it's i mean because for like major drug problems right with with for our major major drug problems and uh, it's not this isn't his only movie that he's made about the filmmaking about filmmaking and hollywood uh dangerous game 1992 also with harvey Keitel starring madonna um which has some interesting hangout like the madonna character the actress is essentially raped on camera in the scene you know which is something that has gone on in hollywood like in last tango in paris and monsters you know, the, ball the, the, the monsters ball and so this is a guy who's you know one thing is, is on his movie people may know his movie um the king of new york which was a uh, very popular in the rap community, right? Notorious B.I.G. supposedly checked into the hotel. He died under the name Frank Smith, the um, Christopher Walken character from that movie. But in the audio commentary to that movie, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, it's been years since I listened to it, but it's a Dean, it even says the thing, it doesn't say an Abel Ferrara movie, by the way, it says a Dino De Laurentiis film. You know, he's the hmm. producer. Like you get a sense of that guy's ego, right? Hmm. And again, this is a rumor. It's been reported that, you know, through his finances, at least, Dino De Laurentiis is is connected to the to the Italian uh, mafia, and 
you know, he's kind of denied it and um, right. But people have, there's been some claims, but I, if, if memory serves in that commentary, like Ferrara, who was probably intoxicated, I'm pretty sure he is or something in that commentary. Cause at the beginning he says that I'm only doing this because they're giving me $3,000 to do it. <laughs> and he's like talking about going to Italy and meeting with people in the mob around the for this movie. It's like so self-incriminating. <laughs> he's got a problem with like kind of spilling the beans, but nobody takes him really seriously, I guess. You know, that's the thing being an artist, you're free as an artist, but you're also enslaved. Right. And nobody believes you. Because well, isn't that the, isn't that the big meta psyop? I mean, that uh, you and Thomas talk about all the time on Psyop Cinema and Sean, but the revelation of the method. So like one thing to think about this, and I, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but the way that the cultural engineering has shifted, right? So I think Brett, you're about my age. I don't know how old you are, Sean, but like having been born in the late 80s and growing up in the 90s and into the aughts, one of the, you know, I've seen how the story has changed for how the public handles the reality and the disclosure of this kind of underworld. So like in the 90s, the big idea was that like this kind of stuff just didn't happen. And one of the ways that people would sort of cope with the existence of these sorts of things and convince themselves that uh, it didn't happen is they'd say, oh, this sounds like a movie, right? Or, oh, you've been watching too many movies. And so right. I think I think the revelation of the method, the function of it psychologically on, 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 the, uh, on the way in which it's supposed to form, form mass uh, psychosis and, and how it's supposed to shape public opinion is, is it's, it's changed over time. I think originally, like in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a large extent to which these movies were being produced and directed and released to sort of gaslight the public into thinking that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So that when people like Albertini would come out or whistleblowers and would try to talk about this, those people would just be dismissed as cranks and people would say, oh, this is just a, a loser who's watched too many movies and is just making stories up. Right. I don't I don't really see that reaction from the public anymore. I mean we're like at a point where we've reached like full disclosure. I mean everybody found out excuse me, four years ago that there's an island down in the Caribbean where the most powerful people in the world go to rape children. And, and Jimmy Savile and the BBC, you know. So I mean, we're now living almost like in this post-conspiracy theory world where there's right. no where there's no conspiracies left, right? And so when you watch a film like The Blackout from '97, you can understand how audiences could have looked at this film and told themselves, "Well, this is just like a, a really kind of like dark." Uh, imaginary fantasy world that this that this Hollywood creative has created, but like this isn't really how the world works anymore. And I just think at this point we're kind of at a point where you watch that film and you go, man, like this is spot on. Like totally. this is yeah. this is completely how it works, right? Right. It's like watching Alex Jones from twenty years ago. It's like, oh, well. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the uh, the it also goes like the the revelation of the method. Also, it's like worldview programming. So that like if you watch every movie with the future from Hollywood is like a desolate wasteland and everybody's enslaved and like all this, um, it, that way we expect it to be like that because I mean, our worldview is shaped by the television is like the window that we're all looking through to see the world and they control that, you know, like the news too and all this, um, it's, it's framing in our minds how things actually work and if they can reveal the truth and then when the truth comes out later they're gonna make it legal 
Like back in the old days, homosexuality was illegal sodomy. You could go to jail and stuff like all that. Yeah. Now no, it's the uh, it's the nor- like it's the norm- it, Yeah, it's the right. normalization then the then the then the the legalization. Right. And then they actually what they do is they flip it so they end up stigmatizing the traditional conservative right. views about those yeah. behaviors. And they actually oh, criminalize you're a that. Cis male oh. or whatever. Yeah. So but, <laughs> right, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I know. I want to. I want to yeah. talk about. I want to talk about the Kimberly Pendelio murder okay. and all that stuff. But like, do you want to maybe say? Can I say something just very briefly about the film that the other film that Brett had me oh, watch yeah. that, or maybe Brett wants to say something about very bad things because about social conditioning, cultural engineering. You're right. It's like this pre-programming sort of grooming you, as it were, yes. to accept to accept the future they want. But it's also just shaping how people behave. So a huge thing about this, and I'm sure like Brett, being the agent he is, like. Bachelor parties, like those weren't really very common, right? At a at a certain point. And then like one of the things that this movie did along with these other films, like uh The Hangover, is mm-hmm. it kind of popularized this idea of like the boys go to Vegas. Right. And like the boys get a stripper and the boy the boys are doing drugs. And right. so it was normalizing this kind of like degeneracy. Totally. And I remember like back in high school when the films like this were coming out. This is also when they were really doing like the whole poker thing. So everybody was getting into Texas Hold'em, right? Oh, yeah. And all and all the guys at high school would have like poker parties. And then so this whole idea of like going to Vegas, going to strip clubs, having bachelor parties, I saw that sigh up unfold in the early aughts with movies like this because nobody was doing that kind of stuff prior to these films. And so I remember by the time I got married in 2014, all my buddies – were expecting me to have a bachelor's party. And they got super upset with me when right. I didn't. But because, see, that's part of like the Hollywood cultural engineering is that these guys have been like 10, 15, 20 years yeah. of watching movies where like you have your road trip to Vegas yeah. and go see a strip- stripper that they were pissed at me when I didn't do that. So there, there's there's actually, <laughs> there, there's, a whole, there's a whole bunch of things to say about this. And I mean, just what, everything you're saying right there makes me think of something I hadn't even reflected on yet it's like you think john, you think of a john favreau right who's who's in this movie who's also in what swingers swingers, swingers right before yep, this, right. Wait, right which man and who's directed swingers doug lehman and who's doug lehman's father right was a man who's a lawyer well, for the well, senate Brent, for the iran contra stuff he makes all of these cia films right well I mean, so Brett, this I is huge, where this stuff is gonna go right I wow. huge, well I, I, I mean the, the final <laughs> thing is like a cultural engineering thing is you get the whole thing about the normalization of the bath the bachelor party the degeneracy the drinking the drugs but then of course you also have the bridezilla with the cameron diaz character okay. this sort of like sort of and presenting the, her the reality tv of the show like Bridezilla. yeah and then and the like, final thing is so out. So Brett just made the connection with swingers. Great. So there's also this thing about like normalizing, like uh, the normalizing delayed adolescence. So like, oh, yeah. sort sort of what I'm saying is like indirectly pro- promoting like promiscuity and serial monogamy by presenting marriage as if it's a bigger deal than it is. In the sense of like somehow like John Favreau's this like weird sort of like thirty year old something guy who's like getting nervous about getting married. It's like, dude, be a man. Like you get, <laughs> okay. you get, you get married. It's not supposed to be like this big, big thing. But, so there's, so there's this kind of like anti-natalist, like anti-marriage message, even right. in these sort of Hollywood m- marriage movies where like, even at the end when they get married, the, there's this whole, whole like subtext where the audience, the young men who are watching these films are being conditioned into thinking that marriage is scary right. or that marriage, marriage is this sort of like overwhelming child, burden. Child too. 
Yeah. And so, you know, like to, to Brett's point about swingers, the idea is like, well, when you're looking at John Favreau, it's like, okay, so should I be John Favreau swingers guy, like going off to Vegas chasing skirt like a loser? Or, or should I get married? And that, getting a and, disease and, to bring home to your future wife. Like, exactly. So, so anyway, that, but there's Jesus. a but so the pattern here is going to be the Hollywood DC. So the director of Very Bad Things is Peter Berg, who is an actor. You'll you're he's an actor, but he's a director. You'll be familiar with his face as an actor, um, in, in many many movies, Copland and and so forth. Um, and maybe we can talk about his background in a second. But so, but he's one of the most frequent collaborators with the Pentagon uh, and, and Hollywood productions. I can go through this, but I mean, I so I I, I work for a I'm on the board of a foundation that that does work on uh, investigating these collaborations between uh, Hollywood, the entertainment industry in general, and Washington D.C. I mean, his name comes up so, and I haven't gone through all of these thoroughly, but his name comes up so frequently in documents. I mean, just scrolling through them, I mean, so Peter Bird is a name familiar uh, to me from going through government documents. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, that's I mean, I, I mean that, that's that that that's the psyop. I mean, it's all in right. there, and again, and it's this. There's more Sorry. psyops too. Like, look at gentlemen prefer blondes and Marilyn Monroe and diamonds are a girl's best friend. And there are these worthless rocks, but because of this movie and the the propaganda, every male is uh, expected to pay like two thirds of his yearly salary or some crap, you know. And you, oh, you don't have a diamond? What are you thinking? Like, oh, you must not love her, you know. Diamonds are forever, like the. 007, all that, like that was the, they were pushing that back then. And it's a money-making thing. Like Vegas wants money. Like that's, and it's, Vegas is also the Jewish mafia and they do, uh, you know, uh, money laundering there as well as right, it was like, uh, the, the it's all money laundering, or, just yeah. like the, just like the, um, the film industry. Have you been, have you been watching, have you been watching Casino, Sean? Oh, you you got that, that from a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I must be. Yep, must not be true. Well, you, yeah. do you guys remember the old promo that they brought out? And this was like back in like the aughts when like everybody was like really getting into like the whole idea that like Tiger Woods and uh, Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley were always going to Vegas. But it's like the whole like saying like what happens here stays here. Right. So, I mean, again, it's and like then remember have... the the dude. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, but think about like the uh, the the basketball player husband of the um, that was in a whorehouse doing drugs, and he like died. Uh, he was married oh, Odom. to Odom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lamar. The Odom. Kardashians, and the then Kardashian. Also, well, then look what happened with Kobe Bryant with the the rape right. allegation. And then uh, Tiger Woods, basically. Well, so this guy's like Tiger Woods. He just got Kobe exposed. Kobe bought for... her a diamond. To... Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then look, Tiger, Tiger Woods got exposed for basically living this Albertini lifestyle that showed right. him the blackout, which is that basically like these these successful athletes and, and, and movie stars and others are basically – uh, tapped into these prostitution networks right. where they're sleeping with famous women like in, charlie in tiger, sheen married one and tiger Woods is case of, yeah it's porn actresses but right. of course the well, whole no place... i mean she's like i'm sorry go ahead i'm, I'm no, sorry no no uh what, 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 what no no it's okay what's what, charlie what sheen denise, denise richards right? Denise richards was a prostitute that's how she yep. got into movies and yep. she worked for the whole hollywood uh you know that's and then she, Charlie Sheen just married her. Like he liked her so much, right? Well, I mean, and another thing too, and I don't know, Brett, if you want to kind of go through and work through the plot of very bad things, because there's a lot of interesting performances and casting decisions and like, but the, the, the key character that I like to focus in on here for just a minute to kind of put out one other kind of component of what I take to be 
an important feature of the the cultural engineering is this this deconstruction of morality. So it's like Sean, you mentioned how it's like okay, first you get the normalization, then you get the legalization, and then you get the stigmatization of uh, around those who who still are opposed to the the behavior right. that's now been legalized. But so there's this underlying sort of trope in the film is like normalizing psychopathy by making it funny. So it's mm. presented as aberrant, but you're still led to sort of think in a way that like it's kind of amusing. So the Christian Slater character who plays uh, this this character named Robert Boyd is this sort of uh, psychopathic loser uh, real estate agent. And he's the one who basically masterminds the entire cover up and commits a number of murders in the course of trying to cover up the original murder. So what happens is they go out for the to Vegas for the uh, the bachelor's party. There's two brothers, the the groom and then some childhood friends of his. One of the characters, the Jeremy Piven character, ends up sleeping with the, the stripper, and he accidentally kills her because when they're having sex, he smashes her head up against a shower knob, uh, coat, coat knob. So then they have to decide what to do, and I they make the, yeah. they they make the decision to dump her body in the desert. But then before they can do that, the the hotel security guard comes in, finds the body of the dead stripper. So then the Robert Boyd character, played by Christian Slater, murders him. So now they basically have like a, a manslaughter case with the stripper plus the murder. So they bury the bodies and they, and they out in the desert. So then the whole movie is about the cover up and how this all sort of emerges and the Robert. Boyd character goes on a kill spree, so he ends up killing the, the Jeremy Piven character. He also uh, ends up killing the wife of one of the original guys that was on on the trip as well. So there's a st 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 string of dead bodies. But the way that the, the Christian Sl Slater character is written is that he's basically a kind of Nietzschean psychopath. So he he makes this speech at the beginning of uh, of the cover up when they're in the bathroom in the hotel deciding well what do we do about the stripper and he basically makes the claim that morality is just mere convention hmm. and that it's ba it's basically for suckers yep. and that and there's that's really Anton no... Levey right there go ahead and so yeah so there's this there's this satanic <laughs> message that's presented through the Boyd character where the audience is sort of given this idea as a hypothesis that like, yeah, maybe there really isn't morality. Maybe it is just sort of pure conventionality and that there's really nothing that actually binds you or stops you from doing what you really want other than the fact that you've sort of just internalized these this normative behavior that you're told is like actually true, but it's just a fiction and you don't really actually have to obey it and listen to it. And that's a huge I think sort of subtext or undercurrent of the film and what you get in so many of these Hollywood films particularly in the genre of, of dark comedy is you're presented this like psychopathic satanic reasoning right. through a character that you're kind of meant to think is like weird but at the same time they're sort of normalizing it by even just introducing it and giving you the satanic logic to consider, right? right. So that that kind of reminds me of Badlands. You know, the, the one murder ends up being a whole string of murders and he doesn't really mm -hmm. have any morality. And that, you know, and that started well, a whole genre in Hollywood. I, I remember. Yeah, I remember when it came out. I mean, I was becoming you know really kind of obsessive about film. I was like 17. It came out on I didn't get like a wide distribution. I mean, I lived in Pueblo, Colorado, so it had to get kind of a big multiplex distribution. It was never released there. But it was it was uh, really heavily marketed on on video, and it was marketed as a dark nine, you know, typical '90s dark comedy, Tarantino esque. You know, was a description that was was thrown about, and that's kind of generic, but but for good reason. And I think Stephen, you did a, a very admirable job of kind of 
Yeah, hitting on what what it's really getting at, right? And it's it's there's this theme right in the 90s that the escape from banality is kind of criminal psychopathy i think that you know pulp fiction and and some of the stuff which right. starring peter green or not starring peter green, but featuring peter green and, and and those kind of movies were really making that romantic right that was kind of this thing in the 90s like making this like sleazy criminal like underworld between whatever hollywood and organized crime kind of uh fashionable think about uh, the ninth gate in 99 like Johnny, oh, Johnny Depp, Depp. Yeah. Johnny Depp Robin, is, Robin Polanski, right? And Johnny Depp is thoroughly satanic through the whole thing. He's like cheating people, lying to people. Well, I mean, this is this is Brett's gift. Is he always says what it is I'm I'm thinking, but I <laughs> I don't say for myself. And so thank you, Brett, because yes, I mean, you remember you were growing up, then I was growing up, then, and there was this normalization of this idea that the escape from sort of like middle American like bourgeois corporate sort of strip call strip strip mall colony slavery but banal boring existence is is criminality psychopathic debauchery and in fact and in fact i didn't mention this to sean but when i was giving the sort of brief brief synopsis of how the plot unfolds is that at the bachelor party itself right you have these five grown men uh daniel stern from you know everybody knows him from home alone jeremy piven uh the actor lester whoever who plays like uh he's in a number of films as well uh who are the other actors uh, john favreau and then christian slater the five of them and if you look at the night that they're having it's just five grown men who are doing cocaine getting really really drunk and then bring a stripper over and the way it's presented is it's like this is like supposed to be fun like that this is how five grown men in their late 20s 30s 40s whatever i mean the daniel stern character who plays the elder brother he's the older brother of the jeremy piven character jeremy piven being the younger brother who accidentally kills the stripper he's married with two kids so yeah this is brett's whole point is like there's this whole idea like well the way that you escape your marriage with your kids he drives the minivan right daniel stern's character is the the father that drives the minivan everywhere right so uh the jeremy piven character and the john favreau character like work at an insurance company or something like the the cubicle life the idea is like well the the best way to escape this is you know go go on a on, on a coke binge get really drunk and then you know cheat on your fiance right before your wedding by like having your buddies chip in to pay so that you can have sex with a stripper it's funny because the cocaine comes from the cia Mm-hmm. And the strippers and the the whores are there, run by the mafia, and like it's it's just like the the videos, the rap videos, where it's like, hey, all you drug dealers, come spend your money on spinning rims and Nike sneakers. You know what I mean? It's like bring all the money back to the white guys. You know, it's it's a it's a psyop, like totally all the way. Anyway. No, yeah, the the movie is so as you say, it's so anti-natalist, so anti-marriage, so anti-traditionalism right. that it. To such a degree now, I think people can see, at least in, in retrospect, with the, the owl of Minerva flying at dust, they can see that, like, wow, yeah, this is, like, really hostile toward the whole institution of, of marriage and toward having children and and, and all of that. And But so to add to the, the intrigue and the sus around this movie, I mean, I just discovered this while we were talking, looking through the Wikipedia notes, but... So the movie, I believe it's just credited to Berg, right? He wrote it and directed it, right? All himself, right? Well, it just happened that in this coincidence that it happens a lot in Hollywood, I'm just quoting Wikipedia now, Very Bad Things was noted for having a very similar plot set up to Stag, a film which originally aired on HBO in June 1997. Director Peter Berg told the AV Club in 98, 
See, the first time I'd ever heard about Stag was after I had finished writing the screenplay for Very Bad Things. When we were at the point of getting the film financed, we had a lawyer look over the script and the film to make sure there weren't too many similarities. I mean, there were things we had to change. For example, one of the characters in the movie was a baker, and there's also a baker in our script, so we had to change some minor things. But as far as I understand it, the two films take very different approaches to the material. I will say this. I think it would be interesting to get like three different directors, say Soderbergh, Spielberg, and Coppola, and have them to all tell the exact same story in a different way. So he's trying to hand wave. He's gotten caught with his hand in the cookie jar, his pants down, whatever. Like, he's gotten caught like, why does your script look exactly like this? Like, what? There's a question here that isn't getting answered. Like, Why do these scripts look the same? Why do we keep seeing this trope in Hollywood? Why? And so let's look at Peter Berg. I've already mentioned the... Um, you know that he has a whole he has a slew of of collaborations as a director with um uh the pentagon um let's see i had some let me i had his let's see here it is so berg was um is the second cousin of writer hg bissinger whose book friday night lights provided the basis for berg's film and tv series of the same name his mother co and he directed that so they're all living kind of charmed lives right he writes that book and then berg directs it uh, his mother co-founded a non-profit directory of youth focused charities named catalog for giving and worked at a psychiatric hospital when berg was growing up um so anyway i mean uh psychiatric hospitals precess yeah, right. So I, I think I mean I think Brad, your implication here, which is well founded, given given what we know about how Hollywood really works and its connections to intelligence services, and particularly in DC, is that this script is a script. It's being distributed. It's like a template. That oh, so all sorry. These... His second ever to connect with that brief before we move on from psychiatry. His second ever um, uh, is it a director credit here? It's a it's a television show, Wonderland. 2000 oh. depicting life in a mental institution from the points of view of doctors and patients so well i mean sean we talked about the Ma mazel's mazel's brothers and the the psychiatric mk connections there so anyway but so peter berg is is just mired in in susness um well but also you get the i mean i don't know if it but Wonderland, so you get the illusion right back to the Laurel Canyon scene with Eddie Nash and the murders, and which we to talked about. Monarch and all what, the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. 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 Do you, I mean, Sean, I know I met a while ago you mentioned wanting to talk about Mossad. I don't know if you oh, want yeah. to still talk about that or if you think I can do that. I got talked another, about it. I can do it 20 minutes and then I'm going to have to pull it because I got to go to work. But do you know, do you guys know that actually, at least as recently as 2022, I don't know whether still Albertini has been in touch with Virginia Jufre and Maria Farmer. Well, yeah, he said he knows Dufresne. Yeah, and so I think he just recently did like some sort of video with Maria Farmer. So he he's sort of kind of on the periphery of this whole Epstein Maxwell stuff as well. So, oh, wow. yeah. Uh, so this is the eight minute clip. Uh, I'm just gonna I just gotta start it. All right, there's Richie. All right, folks. Albertini. We got Richie Albertini again today. Good morning, sir. We're gonna talk about Mossad, and uh, it's important we talk about Mossad. Because when you're looking at the sex trafficking, these blackmail operations that are going on, a lot of the stuff is Mossad. We're, and eventually we're going to get Maria Farmer out here, hopefully soon, who also is going to confirm a lot of what Richie said. But anyways, I want to hear your story. And for people who don't even know who Mossad is or what Mossad is, if you could please. Yeah, we'll get into it. Let me give you a couple statements and then 
at the end, we'll, you can ask questions. And anybody that's listening that has any questions, you could always follow Aaron uh, on Gab. Feel free to put them in the comment <laughs> section. You might want to be careful. It's a little dicey on Gab. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a whole other battle. That's a whole other thing. We're fighting on a lot of fronts. Uh, I want to say good morning to everybody and welcome to another Propaganda Incorporated production. Uh, by the time most of you see this, I'll be landing in Tel Aviv. Um, we're going where the evidence goes. We're talking to the people uh, that are involved in this Johnny Depp Amber Heard operation, as well as people that are involved in some other operations. It's not a secret. I have a longstanding uh, relationship with the Mossad. Ami Shafrir, my former business partner. Okay. So you did business with Ami. Right. So tell us. Okay, so the first business you did, what was the name of that? It was called Amtech Audio Text. It was a phone sex operation slash honeypot. Um, it was probably the largest phone sex operation on the face of the earth. Yes, we made millions of dollars in phone sex calls, but the real money was in the blackmail operation. Political people would call, politicians would call, they made phone sex calls. We'd get to know their sexual proclivities. Which is another blackmail operation. Yes, and then we would go to them and we would tell them, look, you owe us $50,000. They would balk at that. We would say, well, do you want us to send recordings of your phone sex calls to your wife? Okay. All right. So Ami Shafir, was he Mossad or yes. was he working with Mossad? No, he was Mossad. Uh, in Israel, he was an electronics expert. His field of expertise is RFID, which is tracking. His other area of expertise is telephony, telephone systems, um, snoopware, spyware, and how to collect, extract your information from you. Okay. So this guy, Ami Shafir, right now, he's in the Philippines. He's in Cebu City. He's, uh, he, owns a, he owns two companies that I'm aware of. He's the owner of Explore Talent, which that'll be a whole video in his, of itself. And he also owns a company called Trackimo, which is a GPS tracking company. Okay. All right. So when you started working with these guys, at what point did you... Because you, you come from a mafia family. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you know right away these guys were Mossad? What was the relationship between Makosha Nostra and Mossad? There wasn't really... There wasn't any... In, I mean, is there a relationship somewhere? I don't know. At the operation that I was involved in for Ami Shafir, the phone sex operation, no. This was a strictly Israeli-owned and operated company. Uh, the owners of the company were all former Israeli intelligence agents. And who were those owners? You had Ami Shafir, his wife, Sarit Shafir. Then you had a lot of partners, uh, Shlomo Shore. Hey, can I get you to spell out his name? Because there's probably going to be some people. Ami Shafrir, first name Ami, A-M-I, last name Shafrir, S-H-A-F-R-I-R. Sarit Shafrir was his wife, uh, Sarit, S-A-R-I-T, Shafrir. Um, under the our roof is where the early beginnings of the Chameleon Group started. Chameleon Group, everybody knows who they are. They're an Israeli intelligence firm, slash private investigations firm, slash bodyguard. They're mercenaries. Black Rock? Uh, Black, Cube. Black Cube. It's a division. It's an offshoot of Black Cube. They were the people responsible for building all of our phone systems. 
They actually were founded right under our roof at 8670 Wilshire Boulevard because Ami Shafir was in a business partnership with Executone, which is their phone branch, as well as Black Cube, but Chameleon Group became an offshoot of that. These are people who do personal bodyguard work uh, for celebrities, including Johnny Depp. This is where Johnny Depp got his Mossad bodyguards that work for him. Their communion group. Were these guys tied to Disney? Well, yes, we were tied to Disney because we were their porn faction. We we operated all of their phone sex lines. Um, we operated their porn websites that they owned. When you say they, Disney. hey Sean, can you just pause for one second? Um, yeah. Disney. Yeah. Disney. So I, do, I just want to flag one thing that uh, Albertini is about to say, which I've seen him say in other um, interviews as well. So I think he's wrong about this. So I have a question about whether he's lying or whether he just knows something that's not public record, which in fact is true, or whether he's just misspeaking. And I don't know if you guys caught this and you've looked into it, but he's about to say that the websites that Ami Shafir was running back in these 90s for Disney, he talks about a number of films that they supposedly built websites for, including um, uh, Independence Day. But the film he's mentioned multiple times he's about to mention is Titanic. Hmm. And you'll notice this, the interviewer asks him twice, like, oh, the Titanic, that was Disney. And I think the interviewer asks him that because he knows that Albertini's wrong. Dis My understanding is that Titanic was done by Paramount. So I don't know what's going on with this claim he's about to make about Ami Shafir making the website for the Titanic because he ties that into the the comments he's making currently about Disney. But I don't think that well, they uh, did. He's saying they did stuff for more than just Disney. So he just confused, I think, about the who produced it. Well, but he says it multiple times. He said it elsewhere too. So I, I just wanted to mention that that may be one thing he's lying about. I think also, he, he. I mean, that we're like he just announced he's a Mossad agent or whatever. Right. So like we're going down the rabbit hole here. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, thanks for that. Yeah. What was the relationship? How, how could you say it was theirs? Because they contracted us to build their porn websites. We hosted their websites. websites. I can't remember the names of them. There were thousands of them. Um, so you're saying Disney was running porn sites? Yes, through us. Why? Money. We made a lot of money. One <laughs> was the big thing. Phone sex was all the rage. Okay, who was the person at Disney? Uh, I believe it was Kathleen Disney. I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, she's the person that spoke on their behalf. Uh, there was a Woody. I don't remember his last name. Woody was our point of contact at Disney. And I should also say, we didn't only handle their porn. We were responsible for the building and the maintaining of the largest website back then that was ever created, which was the website for the movie, The Titanic. We built it, we hosted it, we managed it, we maintained it. So we were doing both good and bad work Is with them. Titanic was a Disney movie? Yes, it was. Okay. So how does Bob Eisner fit into that? Bob Eisner, Bob Eisner would not necessarily be connected to that. Bob Eisner's connection was directly with the Viper. That's why I say this is kind of more than one video we're doing right now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. We kind of got off on the saw to Disney because at some point I wanted to get to the 9-11. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Uh, I was just talking uh, last night with a information specialist who I provided a whole bunch of documents and information about the 9-11 connection. And uh, he's doing some investigating and some research, and we will do a video about that real soon. Okay. Can't, can't talk about it yet? We can't talk about it yet, no. We don't want to tip anybody off. But we can't say Mossad was involved in that, was Uh, yes. Duh. All right. Another video. Um, okay. Well, I wanted to speak about the recent events and what's gone on in the right. last few days. We'll, we'll, We'll cut this and we'll start another video. Yeah, let's do it that way. We're going to talk about... Yeah, Baldwin. I want to talk about Paul Baldwin. And... So that was that. Uh, He's in another video, like, guide, I don't know if it's from these people or somebody's, like, guiding um, people around to the scene around the Peter Green event, describing right. it. And then this guy steps in and is like, we can't reveal more than this on YouTube because we've been censored. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that the dude that did the video with him, um, Propaganda Incorporated or whatever, Prop Inc. Um, yeah, I watched that. There's not really much more information in that video other than like what he already revealed in the larger. Um, so, <clears throat> so this guy is deep into everything and he's talking about everything like uh, how does that happen? What do you guys think? Like, is it possible that somebody like this could be around spouting all this? And if it is true, do you think like... Yeah, can I say something about that, Brett? Yeah, please. So, I mean, the thing that I my, my view is that I think he's probably saying more truth than the average person would assume. So like you and guys like you and Brett and me who are down this rabbit hole, we get really fine-grained about it. Right. That's why I said, like, oh, you know, watch out. I think he's like wrong about the Titanic. And the Brett's like, dude, like, I mean, you we're so far down I this mean, point. That's true. But so, yeah. but I mean, so I mean, most people, like the general public, like they're just going to think this Richie Albertini guy's a schizophrenic and that like he's making everything up. And the explanation that I've seen when I go into the comment sections of the videos that he's uh, been interviewed in is a lot of people dismiss him as a someone who tries to insert himself into situations that are public knowledge and then he sort of like creates stories whereby he can claim that he well, was the, the problem with that is that they're not accounting for the fact he was there right? well no i'm not saying that <laughs> i agree i'm not saying no brett I'm, i mean this is why i sent you the interview i think it's credible i mean i was yeah i mean i i, well, I don't I, think I, he's I, totally credible but you have to but if you're going to be you're going to be no, honest but, like you have what to reckon I, what, with the fact he's an insider you no know? this right. is what i'm saying though but what i'm saying is it's like there's this black and white thinking in the public where it's like either the guy's a total like mentally ill liar or everything has to be true and i think the way this really works is that right. it, it's it's somewhere in between like i tend toward the i i tend toward the spectrum of thinking a lot of what he says is true now my my real question is like what is his motivation like why is he why is he disclosing this information and what's going on like it wouldn't at all surprise me if he's actually running an extortion scheme right now where he's basically uh, uh releasing a lot of this information because he's warning people who are in the know that he even knows a lot more than what he's even discussed and if he doesn't sense. and if they don't want them to release that information 
then he's going to extort them. That's well, part he, of what he I think. says. Yeah, he says he's been paid to intimidate people. And the big bombshell that we haven't dropped in all of these bombshells of the the would be <laughs> bombshell Albertini is more, that yeah, right. the so River Phoenix who died at mm -hmm. the Viper Room. We mentioned Viper Room. People might be thinking River Phoenix for the last couple of hours because of course he <laughs> died supposedly of a heroin overdose at the Viper Room. According to Albertini, uh, two members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I, I guess dropped, for killed him, or killed him yeah, as for... a kind of ritual sacrifice to is he here's where he makes a mistake i think he said it's the um what, what is the name of the blood album sugar, blood sex, sugar magic. sex magic i mean i remember when it came out but he's got the dates he's got it sort of scrambled up but presumably here's where he just maybe made a mistake he was thinking and he's also like okay so there he's he i think he treats the information uh i mean i think if you listen to what he's saying he doesn't say he knows this directly right i'm thinking of herodotus you know people criticize herodotus the historian for telling stories but he always contextualizes them and tells you where he heard it and so and i think that's that's kind of how albertini is and he doesn't say that he knows that through the most intimate sort of knowledge like he was part of the very bad things crew that killed river phoenix uh uh hypothetically right. but he said that kind of through the grapevine at the viper room but then of course then we have Corey feldman or i should say we of course we were talking about it earlier mm -hmm. uh the audience i don't think we were talking about that on on mic but uh feldman Corey feldman accuses albertini of of killing so again it's the he's a hollywood insider what the truth is you're right it's a problem of of of, of getting the truth you just have to look for coherence in the story and mm reasons to to find him credible the biggest reason is that he's actually an insider and, and that's the reason we're talking about him it's not just it's just some person right he's actually an insider he you know he um yeah and, and that's what this the guy he's talking to in the phone was satisfied um that because they both knew a lot of these people in the same scene yeah. well i i know sean you went looking for the 92 police report regarding yeah. the the green incident but we didn't find that that's probably is there i haven't bothered to check his criminal record to see whether in fact he really was uh peter indicted green was well, uh they if you look it up he's they got like him arrested for crack him arrested for heroin him going to rehab that's like all they put they don't No, say sorry what... what i was saying is albertini's own criminal oh. record because one of the things that he does to sort of like establish his credentials that he is in fact this insider that brett is describing that albertini himself presents himself to be which i think he is is that he apparently did time for uh financial crimes against ami shafir so if you listen to other interviews he's done he explains where he explains that he albertini and some other people who are in business with ami basically sold him out and looted the company right. and then they went and went to prison and then one of the suspicious things that again sort of corroborates this idea that ami was Mossad is that albertini explains that it was the fbi who basically protected ami and sold everybody out including albertini out so if Makes Albertini sense. really was a partner with Ami and he really did do what he claims he did, then there should be some kind of record of his having done prison time for it. Um, but good point. I should have looked for that. I, I should have talked to you first before that. One um, final thing, because I know you have to go, but just yeah. to kind of wrap up about how whatever Albertini's onto really does exist. So you think about the blackout, this Hollywood actor sort of getting entrapped through drug use and, and alcohol being disassociated, blacking out, and committing a murder that's becomes a sort of de facto snuff film that blackmails him. Okay, boom, Peter Green. You look into this right. whole thing, you look into this whole thing with like very bad things, this idea of people going and engaging in this sort of like increasingly normalized uh degeneracy. Well, this gets into the whole Maxwell Epstein thing about like 
Israeli intelligence basically just wiring everything. So here's one of these. Yeah. So everybody, the public now is just walking around with a commercial blackmail device. Right. Because right. like, so, so, so like they don't even have to like really honeypot you in a special entrapment scheme. Basically everybody's just entrapping themselves just right. by being an ordinary electronic consumer um the and final kids thing wanna... are given those things yes and kids are watching porn on that and yep. they think that's what sex is and then they treat their little girlfriends well like that. then they're, then they're getting catfish there's predators oh, that are yeah. bringing them in. but the, grooming, the final like the, fi the final thing i want to say about these blackmail rings and these prostitution rings that are like kind of obviously like apparent in the blackout with like the dennis hopper character who's running the sex club and this is like what hunter biden had like memberships at these things like these high-end escort services Mm -hmm. So you can understand like, well, why would these prostitutes occasionally like end up dead like they do in very bad things? Like it makes sense that this happens. But I showed this to Brett about a month ago. There was this national news story. It's now just receded back into the peripheries of like uh, sort of uh, regional coverage in Boston. But there was a brothel that was uncovered last month. The U.S. Attorney General for the state of Massachusetts had a big press conference about it. They had three foreign nationals, I think they're Korean, who were running a brothel service in Boston. They have the client list, and they said they have it. scientists, professors, tech executives, law enforcement. So this is, again, like Epstein again, but now yeah. it's in Boston. So all the guys that were – Epstein on the, was at, in Boston at MIT. I mean that's, he was, that's why, see, this is he was working with Chomsky. Chomsky no, it, was, was, was moving money with Epstein. Yeah, yeah and you have the, the infamous photograph of Chomsky at the New Jersey airport where Epstein's butler's coming to pick him up. So yes, yeah, the MIT connection, the Harvard connection, all the people that right. Epstein was in business about. The point is it just got unearthed again that there's another prostitution ring. Oh, so, I'm probably shocked for there is a lot of that up there. Yeah. So this is how the blackmail works when the public's like, exactly. well, how could, how could Epstein be at Harvard? How could Epstein be at MIT? It's not just that, well, some of those people are abusing children. Some of those people are. <laughs> But the right. point is the way that you get everybody else to shut up about it is that like the average like dork professor who never gets invited to the island because he's not cool enough to actually go down there and do the real satanic stuff. He's just some loser who's getting wired in a, like a Hilton who's having sex. With, he's cheating on his wife. Right. right. And so the, the blackmail, it, it, there's like degrees about like, what are you being blackmailed for? Right. What are you initiated into? But it's blanketed. Right. So the way that's that why can... the highest orders of the occult, it's yep. like killing babies and drinking. Yes, exactly. Blood and stuff. So that's... anyway, I just wanted to mention that thing about the, the Boston brothel, because that's that that just recently came out and it ties in exactly to what Albertini's talking about. And it gets into the whole Epstein thing. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's it's just like Eyes Wide Shut, where when you all you got to do is just scratch the surface a wee little bit, you know, just have the 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 code to get in the door, and then whoops, look at all of this debauchery and Satanism, and you know what I mean, total immorality, total control of others, slavery of others, like to, like child sex, uh, you know that we didn't even get into the um, the the club, the Odyssey was uh it was a club where the pedos would hang out and he's yeah. right it was a gay club but they would let the kids in and not serve them alcohol so the kids would go in there and the pedos would all hang out and when the kids want to buy some drugs and they don't have any money they would sell their ass to the people and the court and the quarries were being trafficked there according right. to Pini. yeah and he he blazed a lot of the 
a lot of it on Feldman, he says, was kind of uh, doing this to right. to Haim. You know? Well, Brett, the other the other crucial detail that you had mentioned at the very outset of today's discussion was uh, the the mayor of West Hollywood that Albertini mentions, a gentleman named John Heilman, who uh, Albertini claims was this major trafficker. And in fact, Albertini in that CPS recording claims that Heilman actually assaulted him, Albertini, when he was 15 or so. Uh, in a park down in LA and that Albertini actually like busted his head open with a tennis racket. So, nice. so you have, yeah, the Feldman's, you have the, the depth, all this stuff with the trafficking, right. Eddie Nash, uh, John Heilman, he claims is a trafficker, uh, Dominic Brasha, who Brett mentioned as well, right. being the guy that was supposedly abusing the Corys. And then this is where you get the David Rademacher thing, because right. another Larry, person, Larry Benjamin, Larry L Benjamin, and then LB also for little and, boys. They and, and, it and Larry Benjamin is a, apparently the abuser of this other kid hit Doug White and Doug White was the guy that well, murdered well, Larry <clears throat> Benjamin because of that right. because of that abuse yeah so well, well another angle to this that's that's relevant to, to cultural engineering is um so going back to Heilman um uh, Albertini claims that people like he mentioned someone in his high school or somebody was the first person to organize the LGBTQ right um, mm -hmm. activists and, and he and he so he's connecting this this is Albertini speaking not me but he's connecting kind of the birth of that Yes. type of activism we're also familiar with now he, he said, said that happening he said in, quote, in lgbt movement was named hey it was mrs uribe yeah. if you could find that sean okay, you'll be my yeah. hero look up for miss look up miss uribe <laughs> and then apparently apparently a security guard who was like mr howard and then another guy who was and the, the man gym. on the phone knows these people apparently too they're well they're yep. well known enough i mean that he... apparently they're at fairfax high school mr steinhauer miss uribe and uh yeah mr howard who was I mean, a, just... a, just a final weird footnote. The last thing I really have is that and I just saw this. So I, I, I had Ted Field, who is a produce one of the producers of Very Bad Things, who is a um, yeah, a big wig, right? He's a, a heir of the Marshall Field family, and he is the founder of Interscope Communications and Interscope records and that's wow. that's a i'm sure like william ramsey's probably done something on, right. on interscope, interscope that's nice but he is also an executive producer on the first power this satanic movie that um satanically themed movie that marilyn vance is her first it's her first credit on so mm -hmm. there's another there's another overlap but it's a small world in, in hollywood so every time i hear you talk uh there's always an, a long list of movies that i have to go see now clean shaven the first power no yeah don't watch <laughs> most of them you've got all that you got all the intelligence on them now right well this has been very informative and i thank you both so much and i've had you for this much time if there's ever uh, if you ever want to continue this, uh, email me, and I'm always open, and uh, I welcome you guys to the show, whatever. If you have something you want to talk about, um, it, the door is always open. And thank you so much for being here with me today. And uh, before we go, I wanted to uh, let uh, you guys promote your work. Um, so first, Stephen, you're uh, you're our, our guest for the first time today, so please... Uh, tell us where we can find your new book on Malik and uh, where we can find uh, your other books. Well, yeah, first of all, thanks again for having me on the show, Sean. Um, it's been a fantastic opportunity to, to sit down with you and Brett and actually have a discussion about how the world really works. You know, it's yeah. always so refreshing. It's a rare opportunity to be able to do that. So I really appreciate it. Uh, as for my work, yeah. Um, uh, I, I released a edited volume with SUNY Press called Life Above the Clouds, Philosophy in the Films of Terrence Malick that came out earlier this year. 
So anybody who's interested in uh, the interface between philosophy and film and art or uh, the, the films of Terrence Malick might find that, that interesting. Um, you guys may uh, – listeners may know the reason why I got hooked up with Brent and Thomas at Slab Cinema is that I've been working on a series with them right now on the films of Terrence Malick. And uh, the the material that we're going into in, in that series is a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. It's sort of exploring these potential occult connections that Malik has with people at Laurel Canyon and the Hollywood DC connection. The the volume I mentioned is more just mainstream academic literature. Um, and then I, I released another volume, edited volume as well this year called Finding Meaning, um, Essays on Philosophy, Nihilism, and the Death of God. So people who are interested in existentialism and the history of philosophy and Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Heidegger and uh, the the question of the meaning of life, they might find that interesting as well. So uh, all this, you, you can find all my stuff on Amazon or wherever. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we can find it on Amazon. Is there a certain, like, can you avoid Amazon by going? Uh, yeah. So email I, I or something? totally get it. If you guys don't want to fund Bezos, uh, right. you can always get my books directly from uh, the publisher sites. So I would suggest what you could do is just uh, Google my name or look me up, go to my website, stephendelay.com, and you'll find links to all my books. You can go directly to the publisher site and, and buy them there. Yeah. Wonderful. stephendelay.com. Yeah, and thank you. Thank, thank you, man. That's great. Mm -hmm. And Brett, please tell everybody about PSYOP Cinema and where they can find your work. Yeah. Well, Sean, thanks for having us on. Yeah, most of your listeners probably know about us by now. That's Thomas Millery and myself, co-hosts of the PSYOP Cinema podcast. We've been collaborating with Stephen a lot. It's how, how we met him, and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. And um, so I hope people head over to PSYOP Cinema. Maybe we'll put this up on Slab Cinema. This is so this is so relevant to uh, what we're doing over there. Um, uh, who knows? And yeah, I'm trying to hope we can have, do some more collaborations in the near future, man. Take care. Awesome, wonderful. Yeah, I, I'm we're I'm trying to schedule more on with Hans about performance, the 1970 film that uh, we talked about. And if our schedules line up, maybe you can join us for that. Uh, we haven't really been looking at a date yet, so but it's just in the near future. Maybe we'll talk more about that because we wanted to get into Borges, the guy, the book that he was reading, um, and the gangster was reading Borges. And then when the bullet goes into his brain, there's a picture of Borges in there. <laughs> So, like, that's obviously a huge element. So, we wanted to get into that, and it, you're always welcome to join us. So, um, so yes, yeah, psyopcinema.com, and they can find your Patreon as well. You have uh, some paywalled material that uh, goes very deep. The um, the latest Return to Oz series is fantastic. Yeah, very, Spotify, like iTunes. We have a Patreon page. We have a lot of premium content. We're going to be producing a lot more um premium content so wonderful that's great i'm Thanks, glad you were i'm glad you're doing the great work man this is great and uh this has been a great uh like a, a look under the you know pulling the rock on uh, up and see like we got uh seeing what's under there what's you know what's hidden under the cover uh, into the cracks of hollywood and everybody knows that hollywood is this seedy uh mind control mafia environment and now we have uh what seems to be proof uh, that these that's true. And I thank you guys so much for bringing it to light and sharing it with my listeners here on Wake the Dead. And uh, thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.